Got it? And I'm kind of like, this is like Mad Libs. Oh, this I, is fantastic. I, I died on the second selection. Shit. Oh, I'm going to start back over. That again. happens. <laughs> I, I used to map out my Choose Your Own Adventure books so I could, like, go back to them and realize which... Because I would like... To, I liked to figure out all of the different endings. I wouldn't do this for, like, every single ending, of course. I'm not psychotic, but... Like, I would map out certain endings, mainly because, especially if I would come back to them later, I would know which ones I'd already gone through and which ones I'd want to do again. Are you familiar with Choose Your Own Adventure books? I am. Okay, am. yeah. That's how I kind of go through the week. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, wel <laughs> welcome back, Screamers. Welcome back to another episode full of revelations and moral ambiguity. It's a special episode today, kiddos. It is 2023, so. <laughs> We're talking Toshio Matsumoto, and you I meant, know you're all out there going, who? <laughs> you meant biblical revelations, right? <laughs> I meant, yes, and existential revelations, and is this person a ghost or not revelations. I meant all of these kind of revelations. Sorry, I stepped on who we're speaking about today. You, so You did, but that's okay. I'm used to it by now. <laughs> we're talking Toshio Matsumoto. And like I said, I know everyone out there is going, who? Insert exactly? the cricket sounds of... The, the woeful cricket sounds. The, the very woeful, baleful cricket sounds. Because the cricket sounds are also saying, we will tell you who Toshio Matsumoto is. It, it you know, uh, we happen to hit these, like, directors who only have four feature films that are woefully underseen and woefully not recognized in, the, in their own time. <laughs> Um, I mean, I understand. I can. I. I don't understand why Elaine May is not celebrated. We've already gone through that ad nauseum. But I don't understand. Well, I, actually, I, I say that I do understand why Matsumoto is not at the forefront of everyone's. I mean, he's a Japanese new wave new wave filmmaker from fifty years ago, making these somewhat surrealist um, movies. All of them. All over the place. This is very much like it's weirdly tied into Elaine May. He doesn't really have an Ishtar, I guess. Um, he doesn't have an Ishtar. But I mean, like, whereas Elaine May was kind of all over the place with her genres and her and and the filmmaking styles, I and mean, Matsumoto was almost identical in the sense that every one of these films we're going to talk about today is different. I mean, like significantly and stark different than the other ones I mean it's it's really really crazy I think this might be our claim to fame is that we've managed to link in like three minutes <laughs> Elaine May and Toshi Matsumoto <laughs> <laughs> I think look finally kudos to us right so so yeah, the, as if we needed any reason to pat ourselves on our own back again <laughs> yeah, or anymore that's than we are why we got a podcast <laughs> <laughs> hey let's talk ourselves up let's get a podcast <laughs> Two white guys in Dallas figure it out. They finally got it. They that, cracked the code. That could be the subtitle for almost any podcast. Right. Two white guys in two, insert city here. Two white guys figure, figure it, out. it out. Oh God! Thank God. So we're going to talk about if anybody was, was going to do it, it was going to be us. So we're going to talk about Matsumoto's four narrative films, one of which Funeral Parade of Roses. We've touched on before, and we. And we'll do so again here. But along with Funeral, we're going to look at Shura, or Demons, Dagura, Magura, and The War of the Sixteen-Year-Olds. I know I said those a little bit out of order, but still. Slightly, but it's fine. Um, also, we'll no doubt talk about the directors. <laughs> no one who's listening is going to know. <laughs> that The them. War of the Sixteen-Year-Olds came before Dagura, Magura. Right. Fifteen years after do you Dagura, Magura. Do you think, or, like, like, we, like, how many people do you think have seen War of the Sixteen-Year-Olds? 
including us? Yeah, including us. Including the director? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in, in the cast? <laughs> right. So it I don't know. Like, there are a lot of extras. It has like 77 votes on IMDb, <laughs> which is not always an indicator, right? No, but but right. it only has one critical um, review, which you can't get to anymore. It doesn't exist. Right. It has two user reviews. One of them, they didn't watch it with the subtitles on there. Japanese students, they got I saw that. I saw it. that. I saw that. Um. And it's almost impossible to find. I mean, I it's know. not like it's impossible because clearly I found it, but it's not. It wasn't easy to find, and so well, insurance was really hard to find too. Right. Right. Um, sorry. Go ahead. No. Okay. No. I mean, and like so, none of these, aside from Funeral Parade of Roses, there was a DVD box set that was out. Um, 2004. Yeah, and right? it sold out almost immediately. Yeah. Three of them were, um, and you can. I, I don't know. I can't. I couldn't find any reference to being anywhere. It was being sold, and um, three of the movies. Uh, had English subtitles. Uh, the War of the Sixteen-Year-Olds did not have English subtitles. So at this point, I think the way that I found the subtitles was that someone took the script, found a text version of the script, and then translated it into mm. English. So, but it, I, I I thought that the subtitles, not that this makes any difference to people that are listening, but I thought the subtitles were actually really good on this film. They I mean, seemed like, okay. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of times you can tell when something is, is right sort or of right. off. The only lament, and we can get to it in, 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 in when we get to that movie, mm -hmm. but the only lament there was that I, I would have liked to have had the songs um, translated as well, the song, yeah. song lyrics. Yeah. Because I do think the song lyrics were probably speaking to something that was going on in the film that obviously I you yeah. know, don't speak Japanese. But I think I'm going to come back to that over and over again of like, I do think that also the barrier to entry for Matsumoto is not being in the 60s and 70s in Japan and not kind of living that time frame because it really does seem to help I would I would think that it would seem to help grasp maybe get a little bit of a deeper understanding of those films I think especially with War of the 16 year olds you know Shura Demons is my movie it's a it's a kind of um restaging or telling of the 47 Ronin story um so you know how much you know right, the 60 right. 70s context do you need at that point but I do think the historical context Japanese historical context unlocks something in all of these films um, even Funeral Parade of Roses, as much as we can sort of transplant that onto what we're looking at today or uh, what we're looking at in today's, so today's society. Right, right. <laughs> I'll talk. Look, <laughs> we'll I'll get there. there. I'll get it's, there. It's right? It's okay. It's, <laughs> it's early in the early. podcast. It's four in the afternoon. It's still early. This is um, like the calisthenics area of, God, right? no <laughs> of our podcast. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, maybe not because all of his films are set in different. Well, I shouldn't say that. War of the 16-Year-Olds is set in the present day that it was shot, and so is Funeral Parade of Roses. But the other two are more historical. Right. right? Dagura Magura and um, um, Shura are, are more historical um, um, pieces. But again, like all of sort of Japanese history plays into these films. And so the more that I looked into that, and when I say more, I mean like briefly. <laughs> right, right, right. The movies did sort of make... Uh, a different kind of of sense, or I think something else was unlocked there. Right. So I I want to go back and say that we will sort of talk. I think at least by some extension about his short films and his uh, video art installations as yeah. well. Right. Um, so Matsumoto started from a place really of documentary filmmaking, and he became what a pioneer of Japanese sixties experimental filmmaking. Um, he developed what he coined neo documentarism. An expressive type of documentary rejecting its traditional objective nature for one that would reveal internal states and subjectivities. And his films 
in one way or another, seem to confront the contradictions of culture and political systems of post-war Japanese society, going back to what to what you said. Right. His first, did you watch his first two documentaries? I did not. They I are just, those. they're just poetry. They're really? just pure poetry. I mean, they're exactly what he's talking about there in this neo-documentarism thing. I mean, they are looking at specific places and specific people where you would expect this sort of objective kind of, you know, wide view of these kimono makers, right, in Kyushu, I think, what you get is close-ups and and kind of haunting voiceovers. It's really interesting. I mean, they're really interesting kind of pieces um, that, that do all the things that you don't expect a documentary to, to do well before of its time, well ahead of its time. In the sense, like, I mean, like, I, I think of documentarianism, and I, I think of Errol Moros, who kind of does it probably the best as far mm -hmm. as pulling himself, mm -hmm. not and make, not making him part of the documentary, making kind of like, look like you're looking in kind of an eye, and you know, eye in the life or a day in the life, you know, you're looking kind of at the people, at these people's lives. Right. Is that kind of how it works out, or is it? Um, it's It's so much more abstract and... I don't really want to say surreal because surreal is more like what we see in, in Dogra Magura, right? Right. But this is, you just see sort of a, a kimono worker's hand, right? And then you get this voiceover telling sort of about kimonos, why they're important, right? How fashion has, has changed, right? So you get these kind of like visual metaphors rather than any kind of like fly on the wall or pull back like objectivity. You don't get sort of a a head in a box talking, right? Right. You get a close-up of an eye. <laughs> I mean, that kind of, but that kind of right, work, sure. right? So you are right there in there, and he's trying to use, trying to use scenery, trying to use technique to get at emotions, to get at feelings, to get at alienation, to get at uh, cultural differences, tradition versus kind of progress, right? These ideas. So it's, it's not objective at, at sure, all, right, but, right. but it, but it's but none of them really playing anyway. in that right. But it's and it's also saying like I'm not being objective. I mean, so <laughs> right. <clears throat> I'm trying to make up your mind for you. They they remind me. Have you seen like Chris Marker's stuff? I don't think so. Sansolil. Uh, oh, I'm familiar. La Jetty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Okay. They yes. remind me of right. those. Okay. Um, in sort of how they're much more concerned with artistic sensibility, right? Than let me tell you about what these people do every day. You, you know what I, what right, I mean? Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> so, in the day of a life of a kimono maker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Today, the kimono maker will make a kimono. The I just got sparks like kimono over my house. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but anyway, those, those, those first two short documentaries are really nothing short of, of a kind of poetry. Um, I really like how he appropriates television and journalistic forms in order to reveal like the actual manipulation behind them. And I think we see this to great effect in Funeral Parade of Roses, right? How he, you know, brings in a film crew to show us the making of this film, but we're also making a kind of behind the scenes documentary about the lives of these, of these people. And, and it's, and it's like, look, this is how we manipulate, you know, this kind of, this kind of scene, these kind of moments, right. Right, these kind of films. Funeral, and, and, do we want to go back and <clears throat> kind of give overviews of, like, cause I don't think we really, when we talked about this in our Christmas episode, yeah. like our gift episode, we really didn't dive deep into plot based, you know, plot of Funeral Parade of Roses because we just kind of like talked about, you know. It's, it's Oedipus Rex. I don't, I mean, well, I don't, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not, but. Right, but, but I mean. But, I mean 
the storyline of Eddie being this, yeah. um, you know, gay boy. Uh, he works uh, as a drag queen, a transvestite in a club. He is kind of like the second. He's the he's the headliner, but he is. Um, he's, he doesn't run the club and he's, right. and he's right. sleeping with the club's owner. The club's owner also is sleeping with the madam, brand madam yeah. that, that runs the club and kind of keeps all of the gay boys in line. This is of course, and these are the terms that are used in, in the movie. So this is not our term. This is terms that came over from when, during the occupation in Japan. So gay boy wasn't a thing that was being said in Japan before that. But anyway, right. So you get the right. idea that this is not something that I'm just making up and throwing out there. <laughs> They're self-identifying as that in the film itself right. too. And so, um, also the owner of the club is involved in a underground drug trade, uh, that is being used to, it's seemingly, um, well, let me ask you this. Did you yeah. get, did you get the idea that the drug trade, in addition to keeping, um, the owner in money was also mm -hmm. fueling or, um, the kind of the Che Guevara, um, underground movement that was happening in Japan? Or did you think that Eddie was just... Kind of keeping a toe in both in, in both uh, arenas, kind of keeping into his youth and kind of getting into that abstract uh, counterculture while yeah. also being a part of the counterculture that was more mainstream if in uh, you know accepted in 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 Japan at the time. Yeah, I think Eddie's working. I think Eddie is sort of. I guess Eddie's selling to that counterculture, right? He's the kind of link between. Well, it seems like Eddie is sort of the link in the club of the drugs, and so I mean, and also. Because it, it, it seems to me like in probably all of the workers in the club are probably dealing for the owner anyway. That is probably just a side kind of hustle right, within the sure. club. And so then, yeah, they're probably also supplying their friends. Right? Because Eddie later with the Che Guevara crew, it, it, she isn't selling to anybody. She brought it. She it just gives with, it basically. Yeah. Right. So, right? They, yeah. Just, they just all partake. So I think that she is, while she's in both worlds... I think she would be anyway. I think that she is sort of hip and young, right? And this is where I work, and this is how I am at work. And I have friends, but we do this other stuff outside of work as well, right? right? Um, we can call Eddie a, a creative type, right? Um, that kind of work is, is creative. She has to entertain. She has to, you know, get people to partake, get people to buy in, right? So she's a kind of actress, Right. Right. And so, so, <laughs> she, so she works in this, I guess, somewhat underground gay club where straight laced businessmen will come to unwind and uh, be doted upon by these by these gay boys that are dressed as women. Um, and I, I don't and they, it's very difficult to difficult to understand how they identify. And of course, it's 1969. It's not like they, this was a nomenclature that was present at the time anyway. Um, all a while, all the while. So that's the story we're, we're given at the beginning. Um, there's a competition between Madam and Eddie because there's a jealousy there of the, you know, the older woman who's, you know, is aging out of, uh, the, the, the eye of the, of the owner of the club. And the patrons. Right. True. And, and yeah, she's more of a older school geisha, whereas Eddie is this like, New geisha. Um, mod. Yeah. Right. And he's, you know, she's, she's, she dresses in this, you know, uh, modern clothing for the time, very, Outf very outfits are fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. Oh my god! <laughs> One of the things I would have liked to have seen a behind the scenes of this, because the Stark, this movie's in black and white, uh, Stark black and white, and there's reasons for that, mostly because of the the gore and the, and the violence that happens. It, it tones it down, but also provides a really con a, a very a stark contrast to for the visuals. 
Um, but I would have loved to have seen the color stills from this movie just to see kind of how all of that oh, yeah. looked. Because yeah. it really does do a great job of capturing the look. And, and you know, and Truffaut and Godard would did the same thing where they would capture these great visuals of, you know, Paris or wherever they were filming in, you know, Italy. And and just there would be, uh, and, and this, and Matsumoto does the same thing with Japan, putting us into kind of like modern day, modern day Tokyo, 1969 modern day Tokyo. And getting us a real kind of slice of life of that as well. Um, and then, you know, the movie, I, you know, it's interesting to me, the, the, the film kind of plays around with the timelines, right? I mean, like, so if you just look at it from a straight uh, plot thread, we bounce back and forth. We, we go very quickly into the very opening scene we see. Well, the opening scene is a very loving um, shot of Eddie showering. Um, and it's kind of... Uh, twist on the trope of the male gaze and you're watching this uh, gay boy, you know, in, in the shower. And it's basically filmed as if you would film kind of, a, a, you know, a, a film where if this was a female um, and done in the same way, you get water rushing down the body, you get an extended nipple shot, you get a butt shot, you know, it's just a whole <laughs> thing, right? And, it's, and it, Eddie is a gorgeous human being. Right? It's just, it's, you know, yeah. Um, so he's she's very alluring to I mean, like he they capture the screen the entire time, anytime that they're on it. Right. Um, but we bounce back and forth. The first thing we see is um, Eddie and the owner of the club. They're uh, driving away and it's very clear that they're coming out of his apartment. Uh, and Madam is there and she sees them. Um, this sets up a whole plot line of of her trying to get revenge on Eddie and her trying to set her up with a in a, in a fight. Um, and then the, the Oedipus Rex piece of it, where we find out that throughout, we kind of bounce back and forth. We find out that Eddie had been pot uh, potentially abused as a young boy. Um, he uh, also was trying to basically be his mother's only male influence in her life or only male in her life. And when that was rejected by her and almost cruelly rejected by her, oh, yeah. she, he stabs one of her lovers and, and kills her. Um, and then we find out that the owner of the club, the, the, the Eddie's father, because of the molestation, potentially, we don't ever really get it fully explained, has left Eddie's life. Eddie has forgotten what, he's look, what he looks like. He, he only has a picture that has a cigarette hole over his face. Uh, it turns out, of course, that the owner of the club is actually Eddie's father. They find out that through a, he, has, he has the picture in his, in his room. Um, Eddie's father then slits, you know, cuts his own throat, um, and then Eddie gouges out his eyes and then walks out um, into kind of the the public square, and everyone's kind of looking at him and, and kind of gazing. That's almost like an afterthought to this movie in a in a sense where yeah, it's just really. I mean, I get the idea, but it, but I, when I when there's a couple things that annoy me about when I was reading about this, this is that this is a take on Oedipus Rex. Yes, it is. It is a it is a gender bending take on Oedipus Rex, but really a small portion of that. And then we talk about the reason that this should be recognized is because it was an influence on Clockwork, Clockwork Orange. When I was like, fuck you, right. you should recognize this because this is a great because film. Because it's brilliant. I'm not going to push away Kubrick and Clockwork Orange. I mm -hmm. love that film. But I mean, that's not why you should watch <laughs> Parade of Roses. And I... and I Because well, it stands hesitate. on its own two legs. Right. And I would almost hesitate that, that its influences are slight in them. I mean, like, I can understand a great filmmaker like Kubrick looking at this and thinking this is this great film and taking pieces from it when he makes his own... But this is not something that that directly influenced. This is uh, bits and bits and pieces. This is not a precursor to Clockwork Orange, right? So, well, right. I think the uh, I think the interesting thing about the Oedipus or the use of Oedipus Rex is that it 
that Matsumoto uses it as a kind of skeleton or scaffolding. It's it's almost a way for him to get there to get to this story. Right? Right. He's, he's like, what right. if we? He's like, you know, what if we did a, a sort of yeah gender bending take on Oedipus Rex? Like, what would that look like? And then it was almost like, okay, forget about that, <laughs> right? Right. But it almost has like a way in as a, as a way a creative way or an imaginative way into this story, right? Rather than okay, we're going to retell Oedipus Rex. It's like let's just imagine that these things happen in a similar way and then go from there. It's it's almost like that's how he sold it like you said like he sold it to the studios yeah. right and that's how he yeah. got the money to make it because then he's way more interested in the filmmaking techniques he's way more interested in kind of subverting tropes he's way more interested in kind of putting the question back onto us about you know who we are in this oh, world yeah. and so there's a whole through line of um people wearing masks and and and, ma- and we're always wearing masks regardless of what situation we're in and that mask may be different from one person to the next and they may be different from one situation to the next on the same person and that we may not ever really <clears throat> truly know ourselves. And, and so that's a, th- that's a thread that exists in the film. Um, so, I mean, and then we, so we, he does like, like you said, there's a film within a film within a film here. And part of it is that we're the, we, the audience are also a part of this storytelling mm-hmm. process at certain times, specifically in times where I guess the audience is made to feel, I don't know if it's uncomfortable or like, or, you know, they, they, he pulls back specifically in the, the first time he pulls back and, and shows us the documentary style or shows us mm-hmm. we are watching a film being made is during the sex scene with Eddie. When Eddie's basically picked up a guy off the street and. Um, well, it's a, it's a regular customer a regular in the cu- club. Right. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Tony. <laughs> right. And, and who, who's like an American, American right, GI. Right, yeah. right, right. Or and who's also involved with sort of like running drugs. And so there's a connection there too. But yeah. But it's this, it's this really like the, the scene is funny because you're, because you're, you're focused on Eddie and it's like the normal, <laughs> it's like the normal sounds of lovemaking. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but I think you're right to, to say that as funny as it sounds, you saying that because the, the Matsumoto was saying, these are the normal sounds of lovemaking. It <laughs> right. doesn't matter if it's two men or if it's a quote-unquote gay boy and another man. This is normal. He's framing it and shooting. He's doing all of this as if we're watching a, a heterosexual film, right, by, how do you pronounce the Doom Generations director? Uh, Aoki or no, Greg? Greg Araki? Greg, Araki, Araki, Araki. No, okay. No, yeah. So it's almost like we're watching a heterosexual <laughs> right, or homosexual <laughs> film by Greg Araki. I mean, but that kind mm-hmm. of like I'm just going to show you this. This is how this is. Like, this is normal. This is this is. I'm not going to fetishize this. I'm not going to make it funny or clownish, right? And then what I'm going to show you is the behind the scenes because I'm manipulating all of you, <laughs> right? So when we pull back and we see the <clears throat> you know we see the director, we see the camera, we see the boom mic and all of it, and there's a hundred different people in the room. And it's an exaggeration, but there's. <laughs> Many people in the room. There's a move. Around, there's a film crew right, in the room, all around the bed, and basically Eddie is writhing on the bed by herself, and Tony's over in the corner, shirtless, just kind of just <laughs> hanging just out, just hanging out because he's he's not part of this love right. scene, really. Right. So, right. The way that it's framed, and then it's so like I don't know. I love the the the. I, I love that scene so much, just because of the way Eddie interacts with the crew after it's being done. Because first off, the first thing that they say is it okay? Are you okay? They're mm-hmm. very like, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's very, they're pro- very progressive, progressive, right? Yeah, for that time of like, 
okay, are you okay with this scene? Do you still feel, you know, emotionally safe? There was an emotional coordinator on the... <laughs> right, 1969 Japan. I mean, that's awesome. Way then, ahead and, of where and, we are. And Eddie's like, yeah, I'm great. And they, they give her a shirt, and she's, like, playfully putting it back on. I don't know. That scene just plays so well. And then we cut directly into um, the director acting. Asking these actors about, or you know, and they're, I guess, well, he's asking, he's asking Eddie, but then he also gets to the other actors about them being gay boys, and with the assumption, I guess, that they are gay boys, and that so, he's pulled them off the street. Yeah, they, they yeah, right. I mean, that that's the everything that I've read or seen reported is that they weren't actors, right? right? They were people uh, in this. I I I feel like lifestyle is the wrong nomenclature, but. They were they were people in this underrepresented community. Is that better? Yeah. I don't. I mean, I, you know, I don't. Well, know. no. Right, I mean, right. and, and I don't mean to be like, oh, oh I don't. Be, right? Well, that's exactly. I'm trying to be respectful because I don't want to say lifestyle because it's not. You know, right? It, that makes it sound like it's something that you can just sort of take on and take off. And I don't want to imply that. I think it's important that we don't, you know, imply that this is just. Oh, maybe tomorrow I'll change my mind. Right. right. Because and 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 that's one of the questions that that gets asked of. On these individuals, you know, why and will you always be this way? And then most of them go, yeah, why wouldn't I? Right. I, mean, I mean, this kind of look of confusion like, well, and the one, the one question that really stood out to me or the one answer that really stood out to me was they're asking, you know, do, do all gay boys like girls or do all gay boys? And like the, and the person who's a- answering is like, oh, I can't answer that for everyone. Right. Like, I don't know. Right. I can answer it for me, but I can't answer it for everyone. And I think that, you know, we brought up in a discussion afterwards, and we didn't bring, I didn't bring it up, but it was brought up in a discussion afterwards about potentially what Matsumoto and what his viewpoint was on these uh, people and this lifestyle, whatever, however we want to characterize it. Because we talk about masks and the potential of saying that it is something that we're putting on, this is affectation that we put on to, to display to someone else. And I, I, and I never really got, because he's asking these questions, I think, I think, the, I think the idea is that and I think maybe the idea that Matsumoto was trying to get across was that regardless of who we are, what we do, that there's always something, right? I mean, and it's not a mask necessarily that you could take off or you put on, but we all play different roles in our, in our different in portions of our lives. I mean, so this idea that, um, you know, I, don't, I never saw it as a degrading or not degrading or demeaning or, or um, you know, a belittling thing to say that. These people aren't sideshows to him. Right, right. I, yeah, and you never get that feeling. In fact, you never, I mean, he's the, she's the hero of this story. Eddie is the hero of this story. Um, the one that you, I mean, obviously, I mean, he's Oedipus, right? She's Oedipus. It, it, the one that you're supposed to feel heartbroken for. Mm-hmm. And, and to watch them kind of navigate this, um, you know, this, 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 this story and, and how it all plays out is, I, I don't know. I thought it was really, it's really, really beautiful. It's, it's amazing. I think the, the mask thing is more of an indictment of us as the viewer. Right. Where Matt is maybe saying, you know, this is who Eddie is. Eddie's brave enough to take off this one mask that society really wants her to wear and not wear it. Sure. Maybe she's wearing different masks when she's in the club or with her friends or you know, at this shopping center or in this art gallery. But again, we all do that, right? Are we brave enough, though, to take off that one mask that everyone wants us to put on, right? And, and you know, for Eddie, it's the, no, you need to be a normal heterosexual sort of identifying male. And Eddie's like, nope, <laughs> not going to do that. Right. And so you could, I mean, look, I think a cynical, different 
um, different view of that would be, well, no, actually she's putting on this other mask because that's not how we were supposed to identify. But I think that is the frankly wrong interpretation. <laughs> well, and you, and you see that Eddie is consistent throughout the entire film, whereas you see someone like Che I mean, Guevara, who, I mean, like for comedic effect, he sneezes and his, and his beard and his, you know, his, his socialist beard comes <laughs> off, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, right. and it's, and so that you, you look at this I, as, as I do, like, I do also want to, I'm sorry, I just want to no, go no. back to um, the Che Guevara. Che Guevara was dead before Cuba exiled and deported um, gay men. I just want to, I just want to, <laughs> that was brought up in the, I just want to point that out. I just want to, I just want to point that out. He died before, um, all of that happened. That was Castro. And you can say what you want about Castro, <laughs> so, but, but yeah, I mean, Guevara pretending to be this revolutionary or at least pretending to look like, right. Embody this thing. And I, I mean, I, I don't know if that is another indictment on certain types. I don't think it's an indictment on, on socialists, he was part of the yeah, Japanese um, Marxist party at that time right, too, Matsumoto right. was. So I, yeah, I, I never really saw, I never read too much about his portrayal in that other than just a, the youth being a counterculture and glomming. It would be yeah. just like we buying the, you know, buying the shirts that are, you know, that have Guevara yeah, on them right, now. I right, mean, it's, as, right. it's as, as senseless as that. I mean, my beard comes off at night. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've come a long way in spirit gum. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 honestly, like Eddie, at no point is ever untrue to themselves. Like right. when they when Guevara is playing his ludicrous, um, you know, uh, '60s avant-garde art film that he's put together, where he's, he's filming a wavy television, and they've all watched it. Eddie's the first one to chime up, and 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 the gay boys are like, I "Don't get it." <laughs> sorry, the a boy, the gay boys are like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't get it." I mean, like. Ah, it was, you know, my head hurts, you know, it's fun. <laughs> they, they never like, they never claim to be anything other than what they are. And they never, uh, you know, succumb to the pressures of trying to be like where everyone else in that circle really does until they start doing drugs together. And then it's all kind of a free for all. Um, but yeah, but again, like, we're, I mean, that's th that commentary of who, who are the real posers here, right? Right. Who, who are the real ones that are putting on these masks to appease and please others around them? And it's not Eddie and her cohort. Do you ever get the feeling that, like, Matsumoto, like, every film was just, like, mic drop, just like, fuck, I'm gonna, I just did this shit just better than anybody ever fucking yeah, else did. Kind of, kind of. <laughs> I mean, this guy, look, I, I, I sent you a text earlier and said, I don't think I can do this guy justice. And I know that I'm not going to be able right, to. Right, right. We're not smart enough. I mean, I know I'm not. Like, <laughs> speak for yourself, Wiseman. Well, I mean, like, we just don't have the, we don't have the, the, the situational knowledge either to really kind of do him justice. And yeah. we also... Having watched all of his films in a time span of, you know, a, a week and, and less than a week, right? Yeah, less than a week. Like, yeah. We're not going to come up with, you know, a, a detailed, like, I, like we said before in the Christmas episode, this is a person who classes should be taught. Oh, like, I mean, like, yeah. they, we should have classes about Matsumoto. We should have, like I said, a criterion box that we should have a deep dive. And now it's, it's almost to the point where it's too late. Obviously, he's not here anymore. But, and I don't know, I'm assuming, I have no idea what his life was like, but I mean, like this. There's idea, not a lot of information. Right. It's, and it's, so that's crazy to me that, you know, I understand that, that, um, you know, these films are not easy to watch. They're not, they're not lighthearted. They're in Japanese. You're going to have to pay attention in the films that we're going to get to in the next three. You certainly have to pay attention because if you don't, you're going to be completely fucking lost. This one is a lot of whimsy. You're going to be lost in this movie. 
because it and it helps to see it over and over again. Ma- mainly the time jumps, I think, yeah. really kind of mess with you on the first on the first viewing. Um, just because it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of jarring because you go from one scene and then, you, oh, it, it never really helps you out. It right. just, you goes, oh, we're, I'm seeing that scene again. What the fuck's going on? But I do, th- but I do think that if you have seen, and look, I think if you're seeking this film out, you probably have seen stuff sure. by Godard and by other filmmakers like that. Then I think you un- almost immediately understand, you're like, okay, I know this kind of format right. or sure. storytelling technique, you know. I've seen this before. Okay, I, I kind of have an idea. In a sense, though, but you've never well, seen. I mean, the I don't pull back to the, for the fourth wall. Right? No, no, I mean, correct. Like, right, 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 right. I just mean that that I, I because I don't want like people to go. I don't know. I don't think it's as. I think it's shocking and jarring, but I don't think it's. Maybe this is where we're getting to like our intelligence levels. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I, I, I. If you like non linear narrative structures then i think you're you're totally into this does that make sense sure i mean sure um i don't know i just yeah i don't scare people away no 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 it's no, not that hard no if anything comes to this podcast i hope that people seek out these films and i mean i know that they're going to be difficult to find um but uh, funeral parade of roses is easier now than it ever has been mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. hopefully it will start getting repertory screenings and uh, people will come around to it and i i don't know i don't know if it will or not but this is one that um because of its and we don't like we haven't really even talked about this but like in 1969 in, in this progressive this is a re- wildly progressive movie for 1960 this is a wildly progressive movie for 2023 yeah considering what we're going through today yeah um, and so to have these attitudes uh, and have a filmmaker be so open and have a filmmaker have, uh, you know, a trans or a drag queen or however, again, again, the, the, the nomenclature doesn't really exist or it doesn't really define in the movie. But to have Eddie as a protagonist in 1969 in Japan um, or even in the U.S. or any, I mean, like, anywhere. It's, it's, it, it is a wonderful and beautiful film. It is challenging, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should stay away from it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want I just sound like, I'm like, it's not that difficult. Stop it. Like, it's not, no. It's challenging, sure, but like, <laughs> I think, I think we have talked a lot on this podcast about films that you have to just kind of go with, right? You can't fight against them. Right. I mean, and this is another one of those where you just have to sit back and go, okay, I might be a little lost, but man, this is fucking cool. Right. And we haven't even talked about the, the cut scenes or the sped up fight scenes or um, there's a whole sequence where Madam and Eddie get into a fight that was and a, they get into like a Western standoff. They shoot guns at each other and then there's word just bubbles. word bubbles that come up where they're calling each other names. And then once Eddie calls her a see you next Tuesday, she sla- Madam slaps her and then, and then there's a huge fight. Um, there's a, a fight out on the street that's really I mean, there's, you know. Uh, gay boys in a male urinal peeing standing up. That's a wonderful shot. That's like probably like the most famous shot of the movie. Um, and then, you know, the transformation when I, I could go on and on and on. There's all these different pieces and it's hard to like put together a, a real like narrative thread to talk to talk about yeah. this movie because yeah. it doesn't go from point A to point B. But when Eddie becomes the madam of the club and that that's on the the one of the original posters and one of the original like VHS and DVDs is Eddie's like made up face is like, it's so like wonderful. And like, and so like, again, modern 
um, you know, from what Madame had been as this kind of stoic looking geisha. The the one thing that I lament, and one thing you can't really, uh, well, you can't, I guess this is what maybe the wrong time, I didn't really find a whole ton about was homosexuality in Japan at this time. Right. And whether or not this was, I'm assuming that these clubs weren't something that Matsumoto made up, that this was a thing. Because, I mean, historically, uh, Japan, feudal Japan had a, uh, where men, men of, of prominence could, you know, be in relationships with younger men and boys who were beneath their stature. And so this is similar. It's just different. Uh, you know, these are, I mean, these, I don't know what ages Eddie and all of them are. And I'm not, so I don't want to get into a, that type of, you know, yeah, conversation. Right, but I mean, these right. are, these are young men um, that are, you know, g- these are young gay boys who are with what would be seen as straight um, Japanese men of, of businessmen, power, businessmen yeah. right? And I mean, and so, and it seems like that if not prominently exposed, that these clubs were uh, kind of a given and just accepted. Mm-hmm. And Eddie and his, her crew walk around the city um, dressed uh, in female clothing and, you know, gender specific female clothing and um, aren't really accosted. They're not really, there's no, there's no showing of them like outward hatred aside from when the gang of women that is, right. that is sent to yeah, fight them. Right. I mean, they're paid to go right, do that. Yeah. Is that, that's the only time that there's a confrontation. It would be really interesting to have a kind of a, a companion piece to talk about this era. And what's also interesting about Japan homosexuality at this time is you don't hear anything about female homosexuality. It's only about the male right. um, portions of it, if you can find anything at all. So, I mean, it's, right. it, I, and it's one thing I would imagine that there probably wasn't written a whole hell of a lot about because they probably didn't want to write about it. They didn't really want to talk about it. Yeah. But it's an interesting, uh, you know, uh, point in time to say, well, this is progressive for Japan, um, but really what was it like? How prevalent were these clubs? Um, and was this something that kind of out of the norm? Or is it now? I don't even know. Right. right. Yeah. I, well, and, and, and those norms continue to change. Sure. As, right. As, and as well. Swing. And, and, right. Yeah, I mean, because when was, what? I mean, Stonewall was 69. Right. right? So even in our... <sighs> Even in the United States of America, right? I mean, this stuff is not prevalent, or it's underground, or it's kind of like they're speakeasies. Sure. Um, I, but I, I do think the the relationship of prominent male with younger, um, lower statute or sort of you know pupil is, is has been a relationship that's gone back to you know ancient Greece. Sure. Right? I mean, that, I mean that that's a very common you know, thing, I will take you sort of under my, under my wing or protection. And this is, this is what it is. But I mean, look, I mean, the, the, the definitions and sort of acceptances of, of sexual acts, again, changes over time and becomes normalized or, or denormalized, right? For lack of a better term. So yeah. one of the, not, not to shift completely focused, but one of the fun <laughs> things at the screening was the eyeball gouge or the eyeball, the knife of the eyeball <laughs> and seeing how that gets everybody every single time. You haven't seen it for the first time. It is <laughs> it's it's so, jarring. Right? It is. That's so good though. Yeah. Um, it, he do does you, a really good job with the, with, with the gore effects in this movie. He does a really, really good job. Yeah. It's, and that'll show in demons uh, as well, for sure. It's just a fantastic When was, do you remember when Funeral Parade of Roses was screened at Film at Lincoln Center? Was it 2000, 
14. I want to say when 17, 17. Is when they did the re-release because um, there was a four there was a 4K restoration, um, and it, I specifically remember it being released here in Dallas the same weekend that Bad Batch um, okay. was released, okay. and so okay, so it would have been, been 2017. Yeah, yeah. because um, Shura was screened there in 2019. Wow, which was which was interesting. Um, all right, so yeah, let's move on to. Move on to demons. Yes. We'll talk about talk about show. This is 1971, so this is his follow up. <laughs> I guess it is, I guess if we'll call it that. This is a kind of subversive samurai story. It's it's a take on the the 47 Ronin story. Um, so here's the synopsis: um, Gingobi Satsuma, an exiled samurai cast out as an um, Asano clan retainer, is given a second chance to join his brothers in arms to become the 48th Ronin against the Shogunate. His servant gathers the 100 yo required, but Gingobe is also in love with a greedy geisha named Komen. She's about to be sold to another man. Gingobe learns that for him to keep her, her debt is exactly what he has. Um, but this is also a scam. Um, yeah, and then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> this, this, so this is a kind of a kind of like Buddhist hell, right? This that that depicts Gingobe's fall into becoming. And are being caught in this never-ending cycle of violence, jealousy, war, bloodshed. Um, Shura refers to the Asura, the Buddhist demigod of war. It also refers to a path of carnage and destruction brought on by forsaking one's humanity, or I think in this case, honor, right, for our, for our samurai. Um, I, I believe that Shura is also sometimes used to describe a person who falls into a situation where they have to fight an endless war against something in a kind of restless, inhumane manner. There are so many chances for all the bad shit in this film not to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a, I'm going to pull my arms out of this tar with my face movie, 100%. Also, I was going to say, I was, I, was, I was driving in to do this. I was like, holy shit, Brock's at the let lion share the work you're trying to, one, ex use all the Japanese language, and then two, explain all the plots of these fucking movies. So. Um, that, that, that's probably, oh, And this man. is the most straightforward one you've got. Do you think so? I mean, maybe the, I think the no, war I, of the I, I don't know. The war of the 16 year old feels is, a little more straightforward to me in, in narrative terms. Yeah, but it's there's a lot going on there. Oh, oh my God. There's so much going on there. <laughs> there's so, I, I, but I was, I think I wrote that down that that, it, but that also has like, I think, one of the shortest synopsis. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, look, I, I, these first two films remind me a lot of the work of the photographer Daido Moriyama. I don't know if you're familiar with his name. He was um, a really famous Japanese photographer. Uh, I know most of his street photography work, um, but I mean, similar kind of composition, contrast style. So especially these first two films, and I, they would have been near contemporaries. Um, and Matsumoto, in fact, they were both included in an exhibition in 2015 um, at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, a kind of like a Japanese experimental photography exhibition. So they would have been probably in the same circle, probably knew each other. They were probably best friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. Um, they did the Buddy Cop movie together in 1972. I think they did, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Beat Takashi was in it. Because <laughs> he's in everything. Because he's in everything, yes. I know. In fact, he directed. <laughs> right. And, right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so something in this film that I really love is that we start out in color. Yeah, it's so we good. get this so, so this good. like 
burning red blood like sunset and then there is no more color it is black and white and it is like the world <laughs> that this film is set in the sun just refuses to touch right it's almost it's almost 100 percent in night right i mean it's like like and even if it's not even if even if we happen to dip into daytime we wouldn't know it. No. Like, this is a stage play. I mean, yes, this, yes. This, this looks yes. Like, Well, it's based off a stage play. Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's based off a stage play that's based on the legend or the story right. of, the, sure. of the 47 Ronin. Like, this would be brilliant, especially if you could do, like, um, Pleasantville-type, like, <laughs> makeup <laughs> while you were doing it to, 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 to keep it black and white. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. to stage this in black and white on a really kind of, like, like um, an intimate... Uh, you know, theater, they would be so Like in a amazing. black box kind yes. of thing? Oh, yeah. It was oh, yeah. so good. It is, so, but it's it's so gorgeous. It's so lush, too, the blacks. And I would I would love, I would have loved to have seen this in, you know, instead of on YouTube, right? You know, in <laughs> right, the theater right. or in like a really high quality Blu-ray transfer. Because yeah. I mean, I bet the blacks are just, I mean, they, they look great anyway, but man, I can't and, imagine. And, and, and like Matsumoto does, like he knows when to, to make an image stark, right? Because it's not the entirety of it where it's just 100% um, Frank Miller black and white, right? No, it's, right, right, right. But I, mean, but I mean, like it's so. But there are moments where he wants you to focus. Like this is the closest I think we get to a Matsumoto horror film, right? I mean, yeah. this is. There are moments where you're where you're um, focused on Genobe's face, and you, and it's just like it's just so frightening and scary, and like he's so intense. And then there's moments when he's in silhouette, or you know, and you're. The way that he frames and the composition of all of his shots, like this, this is why I think it would make a great stage play, mm -hmm. is just to see the inner, like to be able to like kind of take it all in, um, because the film you tend to focus on the main point of focus, right? But there's so much going on, like like May in the background. There's yeah. so much going on with, the, and there's not that many characters in this, right? But there's but the way that that um, you know his protege slash husband, uh, you know of. Uh, of the kimono what's her name i forget now what's uh the the the, the komon yeah komon um her husband when he like comes to him and is like hey i need you to come <laughs> and he's like just hanging out like lazily like laying in the background yeah. smoking <laughs> um there's a so the movie opens up with Genobei uh basically dreaming of of all the things that are going to happen, well, to and him, he's running right. And this, and I think this is a great shot too, where he's he's running back to his his house and he's being chased. But we don't see people chasing him; we see the their lamps. lanterns, right? <laughs> yes, and you kind of see their silhouettes, but just barely. It's so it, it that's that's a real affecting part of of the black and the white right. contrast. Yeah, there. sorry. And no, no, no. And so yeah, so the whole idea is that he is this run down samurai right and he is begging for money he's he's he has a, a man he has a servant who makes umbrellas to kind of help but, he, mm -hmm. but he's also we meet him and he sold everything in his house he's mm -hmm. in an empty home which a lot of paper windows that get poked through and get slashed <laughs> and knocked over walls and end up. so so i want to talk about this for a second i'm sorry i no, no, no. I, I want to stop you because this is interesting because the we see him and yeah he is run down and he's begging on the street and he's sold everything and his his servants like what the fuck is going on? And he kind of Gengobi kind of looks at him and goes, I, I have I know what I'm doing. And his <laughs> servant goes, Are you tricking everyone? And he's like, Yeah, I am. So that was a real thing with the so those those forty seven Ronin right who were plotting the revenge on their master's killer. There's I guess the um, the sort of head guy um, Oshi. 
there are stories about him passed out drunk in the ditch and people walking by and spitting on him, right? But the whole time he was doing it so that these spies would go back and tell this guy, look, he's washed up, don't fucking worry about it, right? right. He's not going to do anything. And I thought that that was a really nice kind of play here too, so. Yeah. And then so, and and, and again, historical <clears throat> context, right? I mean, right. it's, it's Absolutely. like, the, yeah. It helps, it definitely it, helps. And And this movie plays with time as well. There's a scene at the very beginning where, Kenobi like looks back like six different times. I don't know how many. I just forgot. I lost count. But he it, it looks back over and over and over again. Um, so he's down on his luck. He and his his manservant has scraped up an, enough money for him to get back into the Ronin, essentially, right? And he like yeah, people he raised some money and other people like chipped in and then all this stuff. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> and this this movie so delicious. Like I just love how it all <laughs> it plays is, out. I know. So I know. It's just. <laughs> Twist upon twist upon twist. Mm -hmm. um, so, but he's in love with this geisha. He's trying to, and so she has debts, and that it's exactly the amount of money that he has to pay to get back into the Ronin. Um, and so she goes off uh, to basically confront and and the people who she, who, who she owes. Um, and the manservant's like, "Here's the money to to get back into the Ronin. You need to go do that and let her do her thing. And then once this is all taken care of, you can come back and marry her." But her. But his protege, when I guess, is he also a Ronin? I couldn't really figure out the, what their relationship was other he, than kind of like. I, he was some kind of servant. Kind of yeah. Right. But it but it didn't seem like a very faithful one or a very good one. <laughs> right. Or, I mean, for that matter. So I don't know if he was just kind of like there and doing work. I, but I don't think he was a, I don't think he was a Ronin. I don't think he was. So he comes to give Genobe a letter from Komen. Um, and basically they need to go rescue her or get her from her debtors. Because she's about to be sold off as a as to a to an, to another to a Ronin. fancy samurai, right? To no, it's like a fancy samurai, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we go back, and we're now we're privy to this scene about how um, these 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 four men are sitting around, basically bad mouthing Genobe, um, and they're also you know saying, "Well, he'll never get this money together. He can't you know he can't scrape together two pennies essentially." Mm -hmm. And Genobe has this this vision of himself going in and scaring all these men and becoming very you know basically showing him that hey I'm still the samurai you thought I was and you can't speak to me like that I'm gonna throw down this money and then as soon as he throws down the money the the you know the the angel on his shoulder comes in you know basically his manservant comes into his mind and says hey what are you doing I got all that money to, that yeah. was supposed to be for your retribution not hers and so he has second thoughts and then. The, his his you know we'll call him as a disciple his protege basically convinces him to go back in you're gonna, you're gonna let them you, say you can't that? you can't let him talk to you about talk about you like that so he goes in and now but he still but he can't muster the bravado right that's not it wasn't a real thing um he is able to buy a uh, coman uh back and pay off her debts and because she is going to kill herself right and right. so so he because he, he tries to walk away several times he's just like <laughs> sorry like, like you, you know what like, like you 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 did this you know you figure it out i gotta go right she's like i'll kill myself and she grabs like one of his swords and he gets it back and he's walking out and she takes her hairpin that she had earlier said i was going to stick in my ear for some <laughs> reason i forget why and she like gets ready to jab it into her neck and he you know stops her and that's so so this idea that she's going to kill herself you know because of this he almost like takes pity and then yeah pays for her release and so it turns out twist that <laughs> <laughs> she was never under any debtor control right. that um his protege is married to Komen. <laughs> they have a child together mm -hmm. 
and that he needed that money to get back into the good graces of his father. Mm-hmm. And so they take that money and go back to his father. Well, in the meantime, Kenobi comes back and murders everybody who's involved, like just fucking everybody lays waste. Just like. <laughs> oh. um, and so we follow the protege and Komen back to the father's house. And we find out that the father is trying to raise the exact same amount of money that he needed that the that the son owed him um, because he wants to get a Ronin back into the good graces, <laughs> a different named Ronin, but a, right. but a Ronin that because he's living under basically a pseudonym, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Turns out, flash forward, it's Kenobi. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's Kenobi. It's the same right? guy. It's the same guy. It's right? the same guy. <laughs> so here we are. We're already like, this shit did not need to happen. <laughs> All we needed to none do of was... <laughs> none of this needed to happen. <laughs> Wait, you needed... Wait, yeah, but we could have... So I could... We just had to... Oh. <laughs> are you familiar with the stand-up comedian Brian Regan? He's like a family-friendly... He's pretty... Oh, funny. as soon as you said family-friendly, no. <laughs> I don't do family-friendly anything. He, he's really, really funny. But he has this bit about how if he... <laughs> He was going down the road and he saw two log trucks passing each other. He's like, wait a minute. The, you, you, you were had, just you like, had logs? I, I, you said I you had, needed logs? But I don't. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, and that's just a metaphor for the way that we distribute food around the world, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or uh, oil. <laughs> wait, we're buying. Wait, wait, we could. Sorry. So basically, Gnobe finds. I mean, like, so flash forward, Gnobe. Um, is on the run from the cops because the cops <laughs> know that he murdered five people or four people or whatever it was that he, you know, he killed those people. So now they've been chasing him down um, and he's going to exact revenge from, uh, you know, from his disciple and Coleman. He finds out that they're married and they have a kid. Um, and, uh, you know, he confronts Coleman and the baby is crying and, and, and one of the, like the most brutal oh. fucking scene and like, a scene that today, oh, no, there's no way. There's no way they're going to do that thing. <laughs> right. And so. This is what they do. In order to punish Komen, Genobe sticks his samurai sword through the baby to make it stop crying. And then the, she freaks out, of course, and is like, how could you do that? How could you kill my innocent child? And, of course, she ends up getting killed. And then, um, and then, it fi- and then the son finally figures out that. The money that he gave his father was meant for Gnobe the all the entire time, and <laughs> just a huge comedy of errors. Um, just because, and I think it's you know it's just a but metaphor it's about, about how we don't communicate with one another these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it is, it is, but it, you know it's also I mean this idea about <clears throat> I don't know. I mean the, the, I think I think a lot of a lot of his films, especially in this one, him. Maybe war, and, war of the 16-year-olds, but I think Dagger Magura, too, is like, who do we blame for things, right? Who do we hold accountable and why for some of these, uh, for some, some of our foibles or misgivings or errors, right? Is it our fault? Is it, is it someone else's? Who, how do we decide, right? Um, I think, too, that this is a sort of subversive take on, on honor and maintaining honor. And, and what does that mean? Because is he not or is he maintaining I don't know. Well, and and even to that end, you know, at, at a certain point when the cops catch up to Gnobe, his manservant, the one who's got in the money in the first place, basically takes blame for mm-hmm. all the all the murders. Mm-hmm. Which at that point in the movie, I thought, oh shit, he's gonna do something really subversive and like make it where, um, the, the like Gnobe hadn't murdered them and that was somebody else who killed them all. <laughs> like I thought, I thought for a very brief <laughs> second that this was gonna be a thing where like 
the disciple murdered it kind of was like framing Kenobi the entire time and that he was going to retain his nobility, but no, that wasn't that what happened. No. But the manservant gets basically crucified. I mean, literally yeah. crucified, I guess. Yeah. Um, and gets, you know, because he was good. He was trying to be a, a proper servant for, for his master. And like master. you said, the angel on his shoulder, right? right? Always trying to get him to do that kind of honorable right thing. Um, yeah. I, it's such a dark film. But like you said, it's just so delicious. It, and, it, it, and it, Yeah, it really, really is. And the, in the end, we really haven't talked about, aside from the staging of it all, how gorgeous it really, all of it oh, is. I mean, like... The, and and the, <clears throat> the gore sequences, again, because he shoots it in black and white and such stark black and white are so, so well done and so arresting because you, because it's just basically this realistic looking blood spurt, um, you know, that happens when he kills all of these people. It is a ridiculously violent movie. And he just kills and everyone. Did, without real remorse. Nope. I mean, like, it's just, you did me wrong and I'm going to kill you. I don't care if it's an innocent child. That's, I'm, you know, this is... Sorry. This is it, right? And, and, and that takes us, I mean, back to the title, right? Here he is. Now he's stuck in this kind of loop of he's always going to have to do this, right? He's going <laughs> right. to have to resort to violence, murder, bloodshed, mayhem. Um, and the beautiful thing about the movie is it ends with a postscript about how the revenge took place. The Ronin took their mm -hmm, revenge mm -hmm. and that Genobe was not a part mm -hmm. of it. And, like, it's such a, like, a... Like, I, you could see it as such, like, a, why did he add that in? I think it's so wonderful. Like, it's such a, because like, it's, like, the, the, it's just a, yeah, it's just a twist yeah. of the knife. Fuck you. <laughs> like, you know what? I'm not even going to give you the, 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 the satisfaction of showing that you didn't do this. I'm just going to put it on a, a, a very, very brief postscript and then boom, credits out. Go get out, of, get out of the theater. <laughs> run away. Run away. <laughs> right. You know who didn't like these films? Uh, Pauline Kael. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, Vincent Canby. Really? Yeah. Uh, writing in writing in the New York Times in 1974. Um, here's here's what I want to I, I, I want to read this. I mean, it. This is where I think that he. Should I just say he doesn't get it? Sure. Why not? Um. So and this is this is this is a weird way to open this I like don't short think he's review. Care, but I don't <laughs> probably not. Right? I don't know. Let me see. So yeah. so here's the here's the opening line to this review because humor is in such short supply at the movies these days one must be forgiven searching for it in the wrong places as in a long seriously intended japanese samurai film like it, okay is that what you were like <laughs> but i don't understand that well, i don't understand I, I, that's like asking i know that why blazing saddles wasn't a more straightforward western <laughs> right 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 but then like there's no mention here of like the stuff we just talked about right so so it's like you know demons is based on this kabuki play Okay, but what about the other stuff it's based on? Because that's important, right? I mean, I think that adds a plot. So it's just like, oh, he's just a shabby down, down at the heels, you know, samurai warrior and a faithless courtesan. But she's not a courtesan because that's a prostitute. She's a geisha. She's an entertainer. So, right. so here I am, like picking nits with like <laughs> right. um, Canby's language, but it matters, right? Um, well, specifically he, because the movie makes a point of making it matter, right? I right. mean, like if you're gonna. Right. And also this, the style is soft, bogus, essentially frivolous. Okay. So that, where is it? So by the time a dying husband clasped the severed head of his wife to him for one last kiss, I was ready to say, rats. <laughs> Darn it. 
I I will say that I think Canby's wrong on a whole slew of points here, but I I did think that this was perversely funny in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's there's scenes where once he's cut off Coman's head and they're oh. moving it around. Sure, sure, it, sure. I, I'm like, look, I know I shouldn't be laughing at this, but this is. But that's that kind of again perverse. That's the kind of laughter we get in horror films, right? Right. We're, we're kind of uncomfortable. I'm kind of like, you shouldn't do like you shouldn't kill a baby, right? <laughs> you shouldn't like do this with that. But I'm uncomfortable. And I'm going to laugh at it because I don't really know what else to do. <laughs> right. It's also absurd, right? Um, one last thing for Mr. Canby, <laughs> Mr. Matsumoto, one of Japan's new young directors, was represented here last year by Funeral Parade of Roses an equally solemn, though even sillier, melodrama about Tokyo drug pushers and male prostitutes and their lives of noisy desperation. I, I don't know what to say to that, really. I mean, like... I would it, just say fuck off I mean, if it, he were here. It, it, <laughs> like, how joyless must <clears throat> your life as a reviewer be when you're faced with... Look, I don't know. Like, if you <laughs> see... <laughs> it's just so dumbfounding, but... It like, is. When you're presented with something like this, this so novel and so different, like how can you not be at least a little invigorated by it? Like even if it's a piece of shit, if it swings for the fences, if it get, if it does something different that you haven't seen before, like you're sitting here in 1969. I mean, I get it. If you're just a, a dyed-in-the-wool disciple of Godard and, and Truffaut and you want something, maybe the subversion of the of that new wave piece maybe that angers you i guess and but i would how can you call it frivolous right i mean how right. do you and how do you misunderstand that they're not male <clears throat> prostitutes right and 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 that they're that eddie is not a drug pusher right and that the story that you're being told why are you focusing on all the wrong things right and then and then, okay so fast forward and to, it's not noisy desperation <laughs> right look i mean i get it look it's it's a it's a 1960s movie wrapped up in an art. Like when I say that, I mean like an Austin Powers kind of flashy. Oh. Um, we're going to cut off to we're going to do danger di diabolic, right? A little bit, a little bit with with Funeral Parade of Roses. There's a little bit. I mean, they're kissing cousins. They're not like they're not brother and sister. Right. But, <laughs> but a little bit of that flair, right, is what I'm really kind of speaking. And obviously they're, they're, they're yeah. set at the same time frame. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> I don't understand going into 1971 and why, what else are you watching that is making you think, okay, maybe you just got out of, uh, you know, a shit ton of, of really heavy just crime and rape dramas, but this is not what that is. Right. This is, I, I don't know what you want from this movie. And I don't know. I, it seems like he's going in with an expectation of like, like the studio put out a really funny trailer for this. And he was just pissed off that that. <laughs> right. you know, I mean, that's but, weird, though. <laughs> right. right. Like, what would you What would you expect? One, because he had seen Funeral Parade of Roses, so you know he's an avant-garde experimental filmmaker. Yeah. So you've because you you know, so you go into demons expecting a laugh riot. But you're expecting like the Hidden Fortress. <laughs> right. I, I yeah. I don't. I don't understand what. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't get it at all. <laughs> Um, this is where what makes it rather appealingly comic is not the English translation provided by vapid subtitles, though they are pretty funny, but the borrowed solemnity the director uses to decorate his movie, which looks like an expensive film school exercise. 
This wears the furrowed brow of a 10-year-old boy struggling to recite Thanatopsis. <laughs> you know, <laughs> without having the vaguest idea what he's saying. I just I, I I don't know that I've ever read anything more wrong than this. I don't I don't get it. I don't I I really like don't get it. I mean, there are a lot of times why, you know, look, I don't think that every every critic who doesn't agree with me is wrong and is terrible, right? But this I just don't get. Well, look, I could see you turning off. Like I could see the violence turning you sure, off of this film. I could but, see the <clears throat> I can see the dourness turning you off of this. But to but to dismiss it because it is one thing and not the one thing that you wanted is bullshit. Right, that's what I mean. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I just, I don't get it. It, it makes, I don't know. I, and to even like, everything takes place at night, which permits a lot of fancy lighting effects, stark contrast between light and shadow, that sort of thing. <laughs> like when you... Right, like, the style of the film. Right. Like when you, <laughs> when you dismiss that without even... It, but like, taking time to consider why right and and so do you dismiss any sort of color grading in any film right? <laughs> right. I, mean, like, right. I, I don't understand like i mean is 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 all of that just fluff and nonsense because there's a style here and and one wildly fucking different than the uh -huh. style of funeral parade of roses mm -hmm. so if nothing else acknowledge that there's there's range there i i mean Look, and if you don't like Freedom Parade of Roses, and you, I mean, like, why would you go? I, mean, I don't know. Why would no, you go right. to review this at this right. point? Why are you? Why are you watching this? Why and are also, you? Like, all, why are you publishing a review of Demons when you fucking know that? Like, well, who's going to read that? Who's going to go see it? Well, this was seventy four. Okay, I mean, I like, mean, so, so like, what? What? I, I just mean that, like, so the reviews written in seventy. No, no, no. I, I get that, but even then, like, you yeah. think that there, this is this is not breaking U.S. box office records in seventy one. No, no, but there was more of an avant-garde, more of a an art house outlet, right? Especially in New York, sure. than there is now. Yeah, I, I yeah. mean, because like even in New York, you're limited to a handful of places. Right? I mean, right? How many theaters could this have possibly played in in New one, York City? One. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so no, I'm just saying maybe. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Right? And it was probably so, there so, for like. So Canby's pissed off. Uh, he has to go to a midday Wednesday screening yeah. across town. No, Sunday. Sunday. <laughs> the film, which was shown at the First Avenue screening room Sunday, will be repeated there at noon and midnight today and tomorrow. So it's there for like three days. I mean, like, <laughs> so, so. I'm going to get this depressed for the next I know, two I know. fucking screenings to see to if it'll like, sell out. Don't go see this. Like, <laughs> so... So I, we're, we're talking about a potential of 300 people who could have seen this movie <laughs> during its initial at, run probably at, in New at York. maximum, right? <laughs> and so he has a Sunday, he has to put together and cobble together a Sunday review before it hits press on Monday morning for, or, <laughs> or for the late edition that, that same Sunday. Yeah. Like, just don't write the review. Like, I'm pretty uh, sure the Times would have paid for your ticket anyway, and then you could have just... And, and but can you imagine, again, like in 74... This was a career. I mean, look, Pauline Kale made a career <laughs> out, of, out of reviewing movies. Well, I, this was, he was being well compensated mm -hmm. for this. And, and so. Yeah, and probably like looked upon like with some reverence and, you know. and, and But this is just wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong. I just, well, I find it, I find it so. But here's this. Here's the. Here's the thing. This is the safest thing to be wrong about. Oh, I know. Because who, because I mean, no, no one, one no one gives a shit. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> we probably care more now than anyone did at the time. 
<laughs> Matsumoto's calling it. Hey, guys, chill out. It's cool, man. It's not yeah. cool. Like, it's like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> guys, guys, it's, it's cool. No one gives a shit. I don't even care. Right. Right. I get it. He's wrong. And I appreciate you guys liking my film, but. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So that that just bothers me. I just, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love this film. Yeah. No. I, 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 don't, I know I say, I, I, I cringe every time I say, yeah, no, but, uh, which I say it a lot. So it's, 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 it's awful. But, um, it, it's it's wonderful. I think it's so wildly different than Funeral Parade of Roses, and I think it's like I like I you you put it up with things like the Black Cat and like these other like yeah. Japanese horror films that um, exist in the time, and I I do think that had this been marketed or had this gets picked have would this get picked up by someone like Arrow or mm-hmm. um, you know one of the or Severin or, or Vinegar Syndrome yeah. that could like give it and do it justice at and like kind of market it as a Japanese horror film. I know it's not technically quote unquote horror, but I do think the audience for this one is out there. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the audience for funeral plate of roses is there as well, but I think that exists in that kind of artsy fartsy holier than thou film, you know, nerd area. I do think that, I mean, I, I, I was very pleased that I thought when people walked out of forward film club, I mean, they, I mean, I was hearing that this was, you know, one of our favorite screenings and I have to think that I, so that, that well, gives it's me, so, I mean, it's so fresh and so different and right. so new. I mean, most, I mean, how many people have seen something like that? Right. And that's I mean, the thing. And that's, and, and, and that's really <clears> like the, 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 the kind of the message about these is that you don't get the chance to see something like this very often. I mean, and yes, there are avant-garde filmmakers today that are that are that are making interesting films and making unique and and new films. But this, it, but I still think they fit within a certain, you know, box. Yeah, exactly. And he does not. And this, yeah, I mean, like the four films we're going to talk about, th- these are wildly different. We're going to go to color here in a second, <clears throat> and and so. I, 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 that's why I encourage people to see these, seek these out. It's just because, look, you, you won't see anything like this. No one is doing anything like this and not, and then no one has done anything like this since he did no, this. I mean, like, it's crazy to me. I mean, again, it's crazy to me that May, no one talks about May because May is just a comedic genius. Right. I don't necessarily think that May is the greatest film director ever, but she made three ridiculously solid films and one that's and not one, as bad and, as you think right and one that yeah exactly these movies i mean i'm just, I, I think they're all masterpieces and it's just i don't know why i know there's only four but i just don't know why the, you don't have serious film criticism that's talking about these over and over and over again and you would think that because there's just four that would actually be easier right, right? yeah a simple criterion box set a simple uh kino lober i mean like there's all kinds of houses that could put something together and get these back into the conscious and yeah. get them screened again there are there is an audience for these movies that i think that that if you put them out in a in a draft house and you push them around and you and you i i think that there people would go see these movies mm-hmm. And so I don't know why, you know, I don't know why yeah. we're not doing that. And, I, and, and coupled, coupled that, coupled with his, his prominence in the video art world as well. And so, I mean, he's not just a narrative filmmaker. In fact, he's probably less well-known as a narrative filmmaker than he is as kind of an experimental documentarian. And this kind of, uh, it was at the forefront of some of the, the Japanese video art stuff. Right. And so... Again, like it doesn't like, yeah, you could put together a retrospective at the at, you know, the modern here 
and show his films on the wall, show his you know his, photo, his photography. I mean, like all show everything that he's done, right? Yeah. Put together essays that you. I mean, like, and then show his <clears throat> films at the at the you know at the museum. I don't know. It's just it, it seems like this is a slam dunk, especially because, you know, we're in a weird time frame where we. I know we talked about like I'm surprised there are certain films that are getting made. But we're also kind of at this weird nadir of like everything is just fucking IP, 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 yeah. right? So yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> so weird. I didn't mean to say it like that, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, it seems like there would be a hunger for, especially as we go into uh, you know a SAG, uh, uh, you know the, the you know the the Writers Guild the, the, the um, strikes, the strikes that are coming, and the, and the SAG that's going to be upcoming. And I know, I know that those will, those are cyclical and those will happen. But we have all of these outlets where you've got movie and you've got Criterion. Just put something out there and see and see what sticks at this point. What what you know? Because you've got something that that really is well. And movie does movie does weird, you know, quote unquote right, weird right. films like these. I mean, right. they they are more of that kind of ilk of of experimental and and like uber artsy. So so yeah, movie. If you're listening. Get on it, movie. Call us and uh, we'll help yeah, you out. We'll, we'll work something out. Let's talk about the war of the 16-year-olds. <laughs> or war at the age of 16, which I or also saw. war of saw. 16s. Yeah, I saw, right. I saw a few of them. Yeah. Right. All right. So here is... Here's a really short synopsis followed by a bit of historical context. <laughs> a young drifter and a precocious 16-year-old girl slowly form a bond in a small town haunted by its wartime past. I really don't like know how else to sum this film up. But I will say that, so this takes place in Toyokawa, um, and the Toyoka, Toyokawa Naval Air Raid was a large-scale air raid that didn't happen until late in World War II, um, August 7th of 1945, right? I, I, I think. There were 135 B-29 bombers and 48 P-51 Mustangs as escorts. The bombers targeted the naval arsenal that was there, um, civilian population centers, and the fighter jets went after, quote-unquote, targets of opportunity, which just sounds like people running away to me. <laughs> yeah. um, over 2,000 people died. 452 school children and teenage girls who had been like conscripted to work at the arsenal. Some volunteered. So the idea of what 16-year-olds are at war over, like from one generation to the next, is this kind of nice subversive idea that's in the film. And one that you think this young woman is kind of being dramatic about certain things. But then placed in this like historical context and considering, I guess, Matsumoto's critique of, of nationalism and war that we kind of see, I think, especially in... Dagura Magura, and then um, the one we just talked about, Shira, right? this becomes really kind of complex and interesting in this film. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I still don't know about the soundtrack, but I, it's very like Cat Stevens, kind of <laughs> yeah, like Hal yeah, Ashby. Yeah, I'm just kind of like, <laughs> well, you know, I, I immediately thought of like Midnight Cowboy. Yes. Right? Yeah. With, with the opening, I'm just it, like, it everybody's talking. <laughs> it felt like Matsumoto trying to play in the sandbox of his contemporaries. Yeah. In yeah. this case of making a film, maybe <laughs> still subversive, but, but also like it, this felt to me like a Downey senior, um, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. Melvin Van Peoples kind mm -hmm. of like film, like, right. Cause the color scheme was about the same. Um, you know, it was, 
I, I the way that it kind of flowed, but you know, um, it it uh, and, and I kept when I was watching this, I kept what kept thinking about D double G, and I was just like, oh god, <laughs> 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 because of like generational divide and like family <laughs> drama right. and like lasting impact and toxicity of of family drama and war itself. This family disintegration. Metaphorical ghosts and literal ghosts. There's, is that what, is that why? Yeah, yes, that <laughs> that that that's all all those. The things, idea right? of the living dead, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we have a drifter who gets off of a train, and he comes upon two dead bodies. Oh, he gets are, off of a truck. Oh, is it a truck? Okay. And then he one of the things he asks is like, well, "Where's the train?" Station? Okay, that's yeah, that's sorry, where I got confused. Right. Um, so he gets off of a truck. He sees that there's a crowd around these two dead bodies. Um, cover well we, we assume that they're dead but they're covered in, in burlap sacks and he looks over and makes eye contact with this young girl and then they start walking off together basically there was an emotional connection there and she invites him to her family home for dinner or for lunch and her mother and father um, are there and her mother's lamenting of like you should really let us know when you're inviting guests over so we can have so because this is a disservice to your guests and, you know, this young girl who's 16 is petulant and, and, and just a 16-year-old girl, mm-hmm. right? She gets angry. She's, she's flighty. She gets angry with her mom, storms off. Um, and at, at first, there's really nothing to amiss. I mean, like, there's not, not gotten into blue velvet stage where you're like, <laughs> oh, well, something's kind of rotten in Denmark. No, you're, right. you're still like, okay, well, this is just a, a straight-up kind of young, Family drama, right, sort of. Family like, drama, yeah. like young lovers type, you know, mm-hmm. story. Um, and then, obviously, the history of Tokiyama, uh, or Tokoyama, um, I'm, I'm not saying it right. Um, Toyokawa. Toyokawa, thank you. So I typed it that way <laughs> earlier, and I was like, that's not right. So I, I've done that, too. Uh, we start getting the history, right? The, um, we go directly, and the father is giving a tour, or like someone's giving a tour of, of the, in the naval yard. And yeah, it's, it's him, like some kind of like business uh, because he's talking to like other business people, I think, right? right? And then he's yeah, he's he's pointing out like people die here, like this happened during the war or right. whatever. Right. And then there's a there's a you know a, a this film like it's it's difficult to kind of pin down a narrative, right? Because it bounces around. It is like timeline. It's my synopsis, right? <laughs> and so we we find, we find out that the young drifter Jin um, has basically is drifting because he's gotten a girl pregnant and he's not sure if he wants to marry her or not. Um, so we we flash back to that and him leaving and then kind of connecting with this young girl, and she's trying to connect with him essentially, and and so they go off to a lake together, and um, you know she's trying to get him to go swimming, and she strips down naked naked to kind of allure him into the water, and he doesn't take the bait. Along the way, we meet a uncle who is suicidal and trying to walk into water, um, you know, and and in this frantic. Every time we see him, he is um, in some sort of distress, usually usually from the sun about how bright it is or how hot yeah. it is, or and there's some sort of discomfort that's going on. And he's, he's also had like to... war flashbacks too. It right, seems like right. where so one night Jin's you know is is sleeping at this house and he he hears something and so he goes out walking and the uncle sort of attacks him, not realizing what is going on, <laughs> and you hear him say you know, wanting to die, sort of, you know, saluting him and, and this idea of like, or I should have died with honor or, I, you know, let me die with honor. And so we also, sorry, I know. we also learn 
early on when Jin is talking to Azuna's mother, that's the 16 year old girl, that Jin's parents who are dead aren't his real parents or weren't his real parents, that he was, that he was adopted and he didn't know his, his mother. Uh, and so I, but I think that plays into why he has left this young, his girlfriend is this young woman back wherever he came from who's pregnant with his child is because maybe he's trying to reconcile his past and yeah. figure out a little bit more about himself. Right. Um, we go off, uh, and, and basically the, the rest of the time for about the first hour of this, you know, hour and 38 minute movie ish is that, you know, we, we spend time with the family. We, we spend time talking to one another and can them kind of lamenting and, um, certain aspects of their life. Um, we go to a kind of a resort area and, they sit and talk, um, you know, and again, the, the girl gets distressed and less distressed and, and Jen starts to, <laughs> Jen starts to question the things that are going on around him. Essentially the, the older parents that are there are like Azuna's mother and father, well, who we assume is her father. Um, we find out that, uh, the uncle is not really an uncle, but an ex-husband of, uh, Azuna's mother. And we find out that the, that the uh, he owns the house that they live mm-hmm. in and that the the uh the man that that uh is her husband now is and obviously her second husband uh he comes to us with this crushing line that was so good the, there's a line in the film about and i i, I will paraphrase because i don't know exa- exactly and of course it's being translated so it doesn't really matter in this case anyway <laughs> but so he says life is like always taking the wrong train and you can't get off wherever you want and the fact that you know the name of the last train means nothing. And it's just, I was just, I like, at that point, I was just like crumble on the ground. Yeah. And like, like you just like, oh, right. like, but I know the name of the last train. <laughs> I just, let me go back. What? I don't know. How don't, I can't that, I mean, like, if you don't know, if that isn't like this exemplify the genius of Matsumoto and like, and just how emotionally intelligent and how brutal his films are. That line just devastated me. I was yeah. just, I was just like, okay, I'm, now I'm a puddle of what? <laughs> like, I don't know how to, re- I don't know how to like watch the rest of this movie anymore. No, I, because... no, and that was because w- it was a real kind of because uh, it's like fulcrum sort of moment. Too. And it was so non, it was like it was so nondescript in the way he he was just a matter of fact saying it. He out of the blue, just kind of in this conversation, we were all sitting around, and and the uncle slash ex husband or you know first husband is basically having a, a breakdown because of the sun being too mm-hmm. bright. And he's just like, it's just, a, it's just a man who's coming to the realization that his life is fucking... Well, and, and Jin is telling the story about an elephant going into the forest looking for an elephant who's left the... Right? right. And the girl's like, you're all making fun of me. And so everyone around this guy is losing their shit, and he's just like, life is like a train. <laughs> like getting on the wrong train. Like you're always And you're just train. like, oh, God. <laughs> and you can never get off. He has another line... Late in, in in the end of the film, where the uncle husband, um, uncle first husband, <laughs> has finally committed suicide, has walked in. There was a, a like a lantern festival, sort of commemorating the people that died in the air raid, and he walked into into the water and just disappears and, and disappears. And so the mother's husband, you know, finds her and, and says, "We need to go collect your ex husband's body. He, you know, drowned or he drowned himself and." She looks back and I, she says something I forget, and he just says, they all committed suicide. The dead don't come back. And I was just like, 
fucking hell, man, this guy, <laughs> like this guy just like delivers these lines. But I mean, he's saying like, he's been dead for right. a long time. Right. I mean, you couldn't have done anything. I mean, I think that's what he says. Like you, you did all you could. And then he says like, you know, right. They, they, they killed themselves a long time ago. And Vincent can be hated that guy. I bet. <sighs> You know, he's just like a 10-year-old who's, like, talking about Socrates and doesn't understand. <laughs> so after we get past the um, the, the, the celebration, I guess, um, the recognition of the 2,200 people who passed away, um, it find, we come to find out that uh, Azuna is actually mm. uh, Jen's mother. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that, you know, that the reason that she's wanted him to love her because is that she passed away at the age of 16 um, after she after she gave birth to him. And then, she, you know, she died in the air raid. And, um, you know, she's never been able to progress past 16. But then she's never known the love of her son. Fucking devastating, man. This this whole movie, like, and it's so, like, like I, again, talking about shit that's never been done again. Mm -hmm. Like, how have we never seen a movie... And maybe I'm just missing it, but about a, a grown, almost, you know, adult male. Because he's 30. Yeah, right. He's meant to be like 30 years right. old. Yeah. A, a, an adult male who meets his biological mother, who he's never really known, at the age where she passed away. And like, and that, that dynamic of a young girl knowing, I mean, and like, it's, it's questionable whether as a ghost Azuna knew mm -hmm. Jen was, I mean, that why she was attracted to him, attracted to him and that, you know, she's also embodied in an older woman that exists and that Jen is also attracted to. And I mean, like an attracted to not in a sexual sense, but attracted to an emotional sense. Right. Right. Um, but this idea of, of us being able to go back and, understand who our parents were or at, at the very least sympathize and empathize with them because they were children at one point and they all had to grow up and we understand what they had to grow up and then the, the trials and tribulations that they and the things that they never got to experience like she's like talking about how i'm never going to be 17 i'm never going to be 18 and it's all these different voices from from the right. other girls that died there right right, right? i'm never going to know what it is to be loved i'm never going to know what it is to love don't, I, I don't know what I'm like at 17. I never got to be 17. I mean, it's in, in that those voiceovers, man. And I mean, and so yes, there's part of it where all of these people that Jen has Jen has stumbled into a town where the entire town is a ghost story. Everyone yeah. that he's in, encountered is dead. And at some at a certain point, they're all playing out, um, you know, different versions of a life that either was or could have been. Right. And you know. Jen is able to see his bloody mother at the end of the story and kind of it, the, the movie all ends up with Jen and Azuna walking down a road together and then basically making a pinky promise and him not to forget her. And it's just fucking it is. Yeah, I, I did not think that, like I said, I talked to you about earlier. I was like really glad that I was able to find this is the hardest one to find. And like I didn't think I'd walk away from this one thinking this was my favorite one. But fuck me, man. Oh, wow. Okay. I think I, I, well, and I, look, I get the genius of the others, but like the emotional impact oh, yeah, of yeah. this movie is fucking devastating. And it's so good. And again, how in the fuck are we not talking about, about this. this movie? Yeah. How does this movie exist on a DVD that has no English subtitles? I, like, I just don't. <laughs> like, you don't. And like, it's all this stuff. We talk about like 
found movies and forgotten movies. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of great things out there. But anytime you talk about a forgotten movie, someone's seen it, right? I mean, like there's there's certain things. There's it's, there's enough of an audience for people to still say, "Oh, I'm going to put this out there." No one. I, I wouldn't know about this unless we were doing a Matsumoto, right? You know, a, episode. And like this, <laughs> I I I just I cannot fathom how you can't walk away from this and and just be blown away by it. And and again, not that it has to be your like I, I it, the 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 levels of which this is playing with. And like, and, and take away, like not, not, well, not to take away, but like to, I'm not even talking about how it's touching on war and the right. impacts of war. And like, and so for my <clears throat> interpretation of the uncle is that the uncle died in the air raid and that the, and that the mother and father were what the manifestations were that had to pick up the pieces of, and this mm -hmm. is why he's so jaded about mm -hmm. all of it, right? It's just about like, I got to live in a town. I've got to live in a city and I've got to work in it and I've got to make a life after it's been flattened, after everything that's been good about it has been taken away, it's been destroyed, and now we've got to come back here and pick up the pieces. And of course I'm going to be fucking pissed about my life mm -hmm. and about I'm the one that's left here. And I, yes, it's it's horrible that the people that died, died, and they won't ever get to experience life, but I'm also here, and I've also got to experience this life knowing all of that, plus trying to move forward. I don't know, it, this, everything in this film, like the last, like, like twenty to um, twenty minutes of this movie are just are, are just so so beautiful. It is amazing. There's a moment, and it might be the train quote where it just like turns right, and and it and it's almost then like relentless in its kind of emotional attack on you. It doesn't speed up. It doesn't do anything fancy, except all of a sudden you start to feel a whole lot more about what's going on. And and I think that's. I mean, there was, I don't know, the first maybe. 30 minutes or so, I'm kind of like, what are we doing here? Right, right. I'm right. just like, okay, well, okay. I'm feel, like, this is It does fun. feel like a Downey like, Senior film, yeah, right? It, is, it feels yeah. like it's like it's almost like a parody of, of, the, of the films of the time, right? It's right. not like it's, and you can kind of see the ethereal moments in it, but it never, but it never like kind of solidifies or gels <clears throat> right. until it does. Until right? it does. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, exactly. Until it does. And then I'm like, oh, that's why we're here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it's like, and then you can't, you, I don't know, you can't untangle yourself from it and it never goes cheap right it never like i like i know that the the pinky promise sounds cloying but it's not it's really not there's just this really touching moment of a 16 year old girl telling her grown son to don't forget about me. right always you'll always love me right right and like she's never known him he's never known her that that whole i mean like this this <laughs> her spirit who's never been able to experience anything past the age of 16 has died a violent death and has known who's come in contact with her grown son and been able to see who he is now, like is just desperately wanting to be remembered. It's the man. I don't yeah. know. No, Fuck. It, it, something that I really like about all of these films, all of Matsumoto's work is how wide open it is to interpretation. I mean, like you just said, we didn't even touch on the war stuff. We didn't even dig into or peel back the layers of that fucking onion <laughs> about sort of what Matsumoto is, is commenting on in all of these movies about cultural, political institutions, tradition, progress, right? Um, the lasting impacts of, of war, of the effects of war, right? And how that affects, you know, a, a family kind of disintegration. This film too touches on, you know, generations, right? Like we sort of talked about, 
these 16 year olds that got killed in a war, right? Or these, or, or, or if you look at Azuna and her mother, I mean, just as they are, this 16 year old girl who's, I want to go on a picnic. I want to, <laughs> I'm just going to bitch about everything or right. just like complain about everything. And, and this mother who was alive during all that, and she kind of says like, she doesn't know what we had to go through when we were 16. <laughs> right. right, and, and, right. And, and, but again, like you hear parents say that all the time. And this time you're like, oh shit. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I can imagine that must have been fucking terrible. So, like, we don't even touch on that and, like, the horrors of that. And, and, and yet this film is still so rich. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, it's... I like to think that this is a town that that, <laughs> that there's always a gin coming to. I, I, I laugh, but I, I was just like... Right. That, 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 there's always someone... Like, because you'll see... I mean, assuming that everyone's a ghost, right, and everyone's a spirit, you see ghosts in the background that aren't interacting with gin. I like to think that... Eventually, they'll get their turn. Right? We'll get there's, their turn. There's a gin coming. But again, for them like as this well. is this is another I, I think nice interpretation here because I mean there's a reading where it's like no, not everyone's a ghost. It's just her, and she's just more of like a reincarnation. Right. 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 Um, no, these are people who who did survive and are still there to try and like build and pick up the pieces. And yes, we all deal with trauma in different ways. And so, Uncle Husband is just off his rocker because he's shell shocked. Right. I mean. Right. Um, but again, like. Yeah, all of these people are ghosts, right? I mean, they're all, you know, literal ghosts. But then we can also read it as metaphors and sort of like the, sh I mean, you know, again, like the walking dead, they killed themselves a long time ago. Right, right, right. 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 And, and, and they were dead and they're never coming back, even if they're still right here. And I, what I love about this, too, is that the, the reveal that Azuna is Jen's mother is just matter of fact. Yep. This is not some M. Night Shyamalan, like... We're going to roll back the tape and, oh, shit, did I never remember that he wore red the entire oh, time? Oh, right. The like, doorknob was red. This is just played as a map. I mean, like, and again, I'm not trying to shit totally on. <laughs> not six, totally, though. Yeah, a little bit. Although they do bring up the sixth sense in the movie. They, they said it. They're like, are you aware of the sixth sense? He's like, oh. the sixth sense? I'm like, yeah, no, we've all seen the movie, all right? And then we know. <laughs> Like, it's very prescient for a 1973 it was, movie. It, it was kind of like breaking the fourth <laughs> wall, too. They were really asking us. <laughs> it was a meta-commentary <laughs> on cheap thrills. But but it but it's never done as a gimmick, right? It is just right. It, it is just presented to the audience to do with what you will. And it and so that's what makes it so refreshing as well. Like any other film, any other filmmaker wouldn't have had the ability to do that. They wouldn't have understood the need to do that. And would have made it a point of of oh we're gonna do, drop the needle here and no right it is just yeah she's your mom yeah and that's another thing with his work too is he just gives you that stuff and doesn't he, yeah he doesn't try to do any tricks with that he's just like here okay <laughs> right do with it what you will right exactly right yeah but I mean you know like in Funeral Parade of Roses I mean here's the sex scene yeah I'm not gonna like do anything fancy I'm not gonna like call any more attention to it but I am gonna make you watch it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Except for the four people who walked out of our screening. They walked. Yeah, that that's fine. <laughs> Look, not everyone likes sex, which is weird, but <laughs> <laughs> he, he can't stop laughing there. <laughs> you just said sex. <laughs> this from the the guy so you've done IP 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 IP. <laughs> right. You laughed at sex. Um <laughs> you laughed at other, I think, sex stuff too. Right? I can't fucking remember. <laughs> Anything else on uh, <laughs> the war of the sixteen-year-old? No, no. I think I think I was really surprised um, by how much I 
I really like this. I, I and again, I think this is the most straightforward narrative wise of of his films. And I I mean, I don't think that it's straightforward, but I think compared to the rest, it seems to be more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more of a traditional kind. I can of, like, see narrative. how it's it's seen as his lightest. I can see why they took the. I mean, if they're going to do if you of the four, if you're not going <laughs> to translate one of them, I would. Say, I, I, it makes sense that this is not one that you translate. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's not great. It's just I can understand why. Mm. This is not going to like if you gave this, if you if this is the only film that he did. I don't necessarily know if we would be talking about sure. him in terms we're talking about him in. Sure, but it's still a. I mean, I again, I still think it's a, a, a wonderful one. I, I I think it carries more weight for what it's not, right? Mm-hmm. And then the fact that it is more straightforward and it's not like some of the, it's not like the film we're going to talk about next. <laughs> so I think, but I think it does give that room for for more of an emotional connection. You you're not you're not kind of busy trying to piece together the fragments like you are in Funeral Parade of Roses. You're not kind of recoiling from some of the the violence and some of the subversion in in, in Shura. Right. So you're, right. you're just kind of here in this film that that seems light until again, like it's not until it's really heavy and deep, and then you're like, oh wow. So, I like to think of like someone being Matsumoto's agent and like, come on, man, all they want, all they want is the same thing you did before. Just give them that. Thing again. <laughs> no. like, like three different films. Come on, dude. Like, they are, they are so different. Like you wouldn't it's know. brilliant though. You wouldn't know that they were made. No, like, you, no, I guess not. I mean, like really, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, there's nothing that, that would, that would indicate from um, Funeral Pride of Roses into Shura. Really. I mean, really. No, other than the uh, other than the stark black and white use in the in the, the gore effects, but that wasn't the, the gore effects weren't that unique. Mm-mm. I mean, they're, they're not they're not that iconic to what he's doing. I mean, they're 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 useful, and they're and they're but I don't think that they're you know like I said they're not. It's not like he came up with those, right? <clears throat> but right, right, right. <laughs> no one's like, hey, you know, you you need to go to for black and white gore effects, Toshio Matsumoto. <laughs> like that Hitchcock guy, he doesn't know shit, but yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like you, and then coming into War of the Sixteen Year Olds, you again, you would not have known, especially um, with the music. I mean, again, right. like it this really kind of folk like... rock music playing yeah. over it. I mean, it's just, it's so. It, it, I don't know. It's it's a real interesting choice, and again, I, I I think knowing the translation of those songs would be really interesting because of how it, mm-hmm. what it might be commenting on, but. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, no, I think it's maybe the perfect choice of music because of how it lulls you into this again, right? right? You're going into this, oh, it's just this kind of light family, like drama. Oh, no, it's a ghost story. <laughs> oh, no, it's something else. I mean, so, right, right. Yeah. Azuna kept acting up until like 2020. I mean, she was, really? yeah, she had like a music career. And like, so, I mean, I don't know how big of a star she was, but all uh, that is a ghost. <laughs> right for someone who died at 16 really did a lot she hung around the dead, the dead do come back alright let's try to All dig right. into Dagara Magura <laughs> so yes. this, was, this was in 1988 and so there was a 15 year break from um, War of the 16 year olds to this in between then He's doing a ton of shorts and a lot of experimental like video art work. Mm-hmm. Um, just throwing that out there. Um, <clears throat> he did Mona Lisa in '73. Did you watch that? Mm-mm. Man, you gotta watch this I'm, shit, Wiseman. 
Look, so, so you watch either way. <laughs> <laughs> so real quick on Mona Lisa, this was a short film. Let's call it a, a piece of video art where he takes the Mona Lisa. The and, what? Okay. So it's this painting, right? I don't it's know. That, it's a Slick but, Rick song, right? Yes. Mona Lisa, <laughs> which is what I think about every time someone says Mona Lisa. But where he... He sort of plays with this kind of convention that people like Warhol and Deschamps played with, where mm -hmm. you take this kind of mass-produced thing, or in this case, this ubiquitous piece of art, and you recontextualize it. So he projected it and then would project things on top of it, um, kind of sort of, you know, altering the image a bit, um, you know, psychedelic colors, whatever. But again, like getting someone to look at it in a different way, to consider, you know, Mona Lisa's backstory in a different way because of how it's presented to you. Right. And this became like a big, a big kind of famous one hmm. for him. So that was 73. That was like right after, I believe. Um, well, uh, The War of 16 Year Olds was filmed in 73. It didn't actually get a release until, until 76. 76, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway. Maybe Mona Lisa's up pushed it over the edge. Like, yeah, oh. I think so. That's when they were like, this dude. <laughs> I bet he made a really cool ghost story. All right, Dogger Maguro. Was, but what we're not going to do is we're not going to translate it into English. Because, you know, why? Let's make it more spooky. <laughs> what are they saying? I don't know. Oh, my God, that's so scary. <laughs> I love the IMDb reviewers. Like, I'm a Japanese student, so I got some of it. Some of it. <laughs> You're like, that's a, okay. that's a long movie to watch. Like, be like, and like I can, I could see watching. Honestly, I could see watching Jap uh, *Funeral Parade of Roses* and *Shura* and not knowing necessarily the language that they're speaking. It would yeah. still be rough because *Shura* is two hours and change. But yeah, uh, I, I mean, like, what are you getting out of the world of sixteen-year-olds? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not really visually arresting until you get to the to the scene, you know, till until you get to the 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 scene, you know, the scene at the lake where they're all beating on the drums and yeah, the, the, the celebration yeah. scene, right? Um, but there's really that that striking visual. I mean, look, the color palette's beautiful. Yeah. The film is beautiful. Um, it, but it's not. It's not that movie. Again, you wouldn't. I mean, I'm not yeah. associating that to, to. But there's no real visual language that says, "Oh, right. she's his mom." Right. 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 <laughs> or, "Oh, he's looking for a mother." Yeah. <laughs> but right. I mean, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> so, Dagger Maguro. This is 1988. This is the synopsis. A young man kills his bride on the day of his marriage and goes insane. He wakes up in an asylum with no memory, uh, left in the hands of two mysterious doctors who relate his condition with his biological identity. This is a non-linear bit of mindfuckery brilliance that I found so thoroughly enjoyable and trippy and completely untrustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's like... It's, I, you know, again, all of the things we could say, I mean, like Monty Python and Lynch and like, <laughs> it, you know, it, um, Gilliam and, and, and all the things that it either was influenced by or clearly influenced. I, I, there's no way to talk about, I don't know how to talk about this. I, because one, I need to, I really truly need to see it again. I've only seen oh, it, yeah. I've only I've seen only it seen once. once. Yeah. And like, and so it's so dense and it's like you, like you said, it's, like if you think of, I, I hate to compare it to Shutter Island, but that's okay. But, but it, no, yeah, I, I mean, I could similar see that. structure mm -hmm. of Shutter Island where you don't really. I mean, in Shutter, Shutter Island, obviously has a reveal, and you understand what the plot. Like this, 
you really don't. Like mm-hmm. the, you've got a ridiculously I, unli- unreliable narrator. I thought more about Cure with this one too. Yeah, because yeah. we have a character who who doesn't remember anything. Who you know, <laughs> right. and, and and we also are sort of wondering like, wait, what's real? Who's real? Who's not real in this? Look, I think I mean this. This is a film that goes back to this idea of moral accountability as well, and who. Who's responsible for this? Again, cl- the classes should be taught. Yeah, because the yeah. whole the whole idea here is that we've got two. I mean, so we've got one young man who's in an insane asylum, and you've got two seeming psychiatrists who are trying to convince him of this generational. Um, Basically, it's like inherited mental illness. Right. Right. Inherited. Right. It, they call it ICP, and some I, I can't remember. Like, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like in, the inherited clown posse. <laughs> um, <laughs> but basically, they're saying like you, you know, they're they're trying to say like you killed your bride because one of your ancestors did the same thing. So you're and, just and reenacting it's, history. It's, yeah, it's passed through your genetics, right? But also taking a, taking the genetic piece out of it, this whole idea of history repeating itself and not you know not learning and not being able to. To not not studying it, not it, th- yeah. there is so so much, much going on right. in this movie. But there's also this idea of these two psychiatrists that were basically trying to get him to do this thing anyway. <laughs> right. So so this was something I'm like, okay, so they're they're trying to do all this stuff to prove their theory, right? So I mean, this, so I then it's like, I, who I again? Like, who's accountable here? I don't want to jump ahead. I'm gonna have <laughs> well, to I mean, <laughs> because again, yeah, it doesn't really make like the, the narrative piece here. You, you, I mean, speaking the, we, of like time fucking jumps and like, where right, are we? we? We jump from to, to feudal Japan to 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 modern day to going back a, a generation and another generation. Like we're stuck in like the like this is set in the twenties, right? Like, yeah. So like the so, asylums in the twenties, we go yeah. back to feudal Japan and like puppetry. Yeah. And then we go back a generation or two before that in the same character, and they're all played by the same actor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that the psych one of the psychiatrists gets co- so caught up in the insanity of what he's trying to do and what's happening <laughs> that he literally goes insane himself. <laughs> that's fine. I think that's what Brock and I will find here is that we will <laughs> we will talk yes. ourselves stupid. Because, <laughs> yes, <laughs> trying to explain this. Oh movie. shit! Too late. <laughs> Damn. So we open up on um, you know it, this is. We open up on a on a on a boy waking up in an insane asylum, and again, this insane asylum room. He's come, nineteen. We come back to over and over again, and we, he starts to hear this voice from another room saying "brother in law, brother in law, brother in law," and then we get one of the psychiatrists comes in and tells him, you know, basically what has happened is that you've killed your bride on the night before your wedding, and he's like, but he's trying to remember. He cannot remember anything. Mm-mm. Um, I don't know how to explain it from there. I mean, it's like it's again, there's so much that happens because when we go into the mind of the boy. The boy starts to like, the boy starts to glom on and to and to start to accept the theory of genetic being just being passed down. So then he starts to kind of prophesize it. I mean, as well, like he he teaches a class in his own head, well, full of like yeah, chickens yeah. and other people that are in the insane asylum. It is a it is a unbelievable I, scene. Yeah, I called it bug nuts. <laughs> yes, I did. It's very did. bug nuts. It's very yes. bug nuts. Yes. Yeah. But and so these these two psychiatrists are very much kind of opposites of each other too. One is unhinged. I mean, just <laughs> right. like a mad scientist. And the other seems more staid, more scientific, 
maybe more and more focused on empirical data, right? The other one's like, let's do experiments. Let's let's let everybody just enact, you know, act out these kind of, you know, insanities in their head and see what happens. Yeah, people out in the yard, like digging, you know, trenches. And one, one woman thinks she's Anna Pavlova. And so she's, <laughs> you know, she's dancing across the courtyard. And then they, they sort of, they're never in the same room together. But like they will come in and talk to right, which I thought for a the minute boy. that they were the same person. I, at some, at, I know, I, I, I thought too. that. The, and and so yes, the the scene, the way the scenes play out is that the psychiatrist will be talking to the boy, and then he'll turn and and on the other side of the desk he'll be talking, and then the the scene will shift into a different time frame or a different mindset. It's it is, <clears throat> it's all bonkers. It's it's crazy. Um, well, I was, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was, I was, no, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I had a thread that I was going to go to, but I completely fucking forgot it. Cause it's, again, it's hard to pull on any of this. Oh, so the original story is that, um, the, the, the original murder happened, mm-hmm. uh, because he, he killed his bride and was trying to keep her from decaying essentially. Well, or, he, he was a court artist. Right. right. And it was like, kind of like the right hand. A, a close advisor to to the Chinese emperor, and what he saw, and he, and he and he he fell in love with this woman who was in the emperor's court, and so the emperor valued this guy so much that he gave him this woman to marry. Now, look, men cannot give men other women. I just want to put that out there, but they were, by all accounts, very much in love. Well, our artist started to see kind of corruption in the court due to the emperor's wife, etc., and so he needed to find a way to show. Right, the emperor, what was going on without, he couldn't just go up and tell the emperor. So he, he told his wife, like, you know, I love you, but I have to kill you because I need to do this thing. And she's like, cool, I'm good with that. But the body starts to decay faster than he can paint the body to depict this story. And so then he has to go kill someone else <laughs> to, to keep on painting. And then he has to go kill someone else. And then he becomes sort of infatuated with the act of, of killing. He eventually this original artist eventually flees to Japan, right? And then somehow the genetics trace back to, to our character. Right. Right. Okay. And so then that happens, I guess, late 1800s when the, the, the next killing happens. And then they're trying to convince him that he is that person. Right. Because there was this scroll that they were, that these doctors were looking for. Or, or there was like a legend. I don't know. And then this woman finds the scroll. And, right. And we need to watch it again. That's what I mean, basically, we need to watch it. And yeah. I don't, I don't well, know if a single, another single viewing will help us piece all of this. No. Thing. No, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a really fat. Well, here's the other thing, too, that, that, that I mean, this is basically. <laughs> so this is based on a 1935 novel of the same name by Yumino Kayasuka. Right. I mean, and. <laughs> I, it, it, on one hand, right, it is an examination of like Freudian analysis. Mm. And on the other, apparently the writer knew people within this Kyushu Imperial University, right? The, the, the psychoanalysis department at this university, which is like where we are. And so he was able to get like inside information and sort of give a kind of insight to the practices that were going on. And so I wonder like how much that we see in this film was actually sort of like you know, happening, experimentation. Sort of like experimentation. Right. Um, but the movie seems to be a kind of realization of the novel written by the character. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Now I have to explain how I got the there. Don't Charlie Kaufman adaptation. <laughs> I mean, great. kind yeah. of right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it is a certain point. Um, they're in. So this one doctor, the kind of crazy doctor, uh, kills himself, and the more staid doctor takes our character into the office, and he looks around and he picks up like a, a manuscript. And he's like, "What's this?" And he's like, "Oh." It's a novel called Dagara Magara, which this patient wrote and actually put myself and Dr. Miyaki <laughs> as characters in. You should read it. And he's like, no, I'm good. I don't want to read that. <laughs> <laughs> but, and that's the last we hear of it. Right. But that's it, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what this, this yeah. movie is? Yeah. <laughs> so there, we figured it out. <laughs> makes, makes perfect <laughs> sense. But, but I mean, I, mean, I don't know. These, these deeper ideas of like... How do how do we deal with with not just mental illness but with mentally ill and and how do we again what are they accountable for because I mean one of the doctors says something like well without intent we couldn't hold this guy right there's, like, oh, okay. there's no more there's so many lines and and this is and one it being subtitled makes it in and, and so rapid fire it makes it hard to catch all this stuff and then re retain it but there's one line there's a couple lines in there. One of them was like the mind or the brain doesn't think that the brain thinks. And like, there's just so many things like, yeah. like that, like there's a but lot the of brain exists to prove the brain or something. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. There's so much like that where he's just like kind of spouting off and, and, and shouting into the ether of these like crazy non sequiturs that he, th that he thinks are, you know, uh, of import and, and, and weight. And it, I don't know, it, it, it also, it shifts so well between what, we see in um, the mind of the crazy kid, and and, and not to be um, <laughs> insensitive, but well, his nickname um, is Looney Lad, I think. Right, right. So essentially, they call him Crazy Kid, right? Yeah. Um, and then you know, from what he's seeing to what's actually happening, and then, or and again, you really never know what's actually happening. Right? There's no, it, it it never relents, and it never gives you any sort of grace to like to actually understand who is actually. Pulling, who's pulling, who's actually pulling the strings who's actually right who's actually actually real or not um i mean ultimately we're left to believe that this all just happened inside the mind of looney lad mm -hmm. right because we're left at the end of this movie after he's you know he sees himself out in the courtyard and that convinces himself that he is the person that was or that he's a twin or that something along those lines that he agrees with their icp um you know theory and that the person he sees out in the in the courtyard then very violently kills um, a bunch of people, a bunch of other people, so that he can perform the painting ritual again. And 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 um, you know, and then after all that happens, we're left with Looney Lad waking up yet again, but in more of a dilapidated um, cell, you know, in the same room. But it, but it's it's much it it. it uh, decayed yeah. and then that's really the end of the movie but I think and again I one of these what, focusing on what's actually happening in a Matsumoto film also seems like you're missing the point right right, right. it's all about <clears throat> how what do we do with this you know not learning from history or repeating ourselves and 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 really is there any sort of I think it's really interesting the commentary on generational trauma and yeah. and how we carry that over you know because again, he's coming out of post-war Japan. I mean, like, and also, I, mean, I know this is an eighty-eight, but still, this idea of, of of us trying to find an identity and trying to figure out who the fuck we are. Oh yeah. In this sense of like uh, all of this this tragedy that's happened and all this violence that's happened before us, 
it's really, really. Well, I, and, it's, and that shit doesn't go away. I mean, I mean, again, like grief, trauma. I mean, we can figure out how to deal with it or figure out how to kind of live with it and, and you know get better from it, but it doesn't go away. I mean, so you know, eighty-eight and post-war Japan. Look, you're still dealing with these terrible acts, and I mean, so from from the war that was there and that that this this nation was was part of to having two atomic bombs dropped on them there's a lot to process there you know i'm guessing it's going to take a while i mean and, and, <laughs> right. and, and you see german filmmakers wrestle right with a lot of these with a lot of those ideas as well and they're still going to well and and there's a thread here where uh looney lad actually starts to latch on to the to the horror that was that that was generation generationally carried down so like he starts to to read the scroll and get excited i mean get excited about it and, and want to recreate it and then the the psychiatrists who are studying it start to put themselves in those roles right. as well and, and they I, give him the scroll i mean so again like right and so yeah and trying to perpetrate it right for, trying like, to enact this kind of you know yeah trying to prove their theory right trying to enact the very theory but again, I mean, I, that raises a question of how do we even then become aware of some of these generational tragedies, right? I mean, you know, right. how do we find out then how do we, again, how do we learn from that? And what are we learning from that? And what do we need to learn from that? And these stories, are, I mean, again, with an unreliable narrator, these stories that we're telling ourselves, are they even fucking real? Right. Did they happen? Right. Did they happen? Did they happen to someone else? Why are we telling them? <laughs> right. right? I, I think this film, along with, you know, Funeral and, and well, all of the other films, actually, sort of I, have this connective thread of almost like a human duality, mm -hmm. right? We are more than one person. Right? I mean, we see Looney Lad doesn't want to believe he's this person, right? He's like, no, I'm, I'm not that person. I'm this person. And at one point, one of the doctors says, oh, yeah, you're a twin. I mean, so this right. idea of, like, who are we, right? We're split in two. The two doctors, right? Are they one person and they're just different halves of, of a person? I mean, even our samurai, right? This is what a samurai is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. This is what he is. And, and I mean, you can make the connections with the other films. But I think this is an interesting idea, too. Again, like, who are we? What kind of mask are we wearing at this time? Why are we wearing it? Right? And what fucking stories am I going to tell about this mask? Right. It's... Uh, you know, normally you know, without this podcast, I don't think either one of us go through and sit there and, and plow through a, a director's filmography. But, not, not like this. Right. I mean, you know, not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not in rapid succession. Right. Um, and then whereas you can look at like how disparate like Elaine May's films were from one another. I mean, I guess not necessarily the first two, but I mean like her, her, her next two, um, it, it, nothing, I, I don't know, being able to see this in kind of a holistic big picture view of watching all four of these films is kind of the same thing. It, it really is kind of eye-opening. I mean, mm -hmm. like the, like his themes carry over so well all, over all these films. And, and there's completely different types of films. Right. And they're so, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, it's, it's, and like it never, there's, <laughs> like, like he's not gonna, there's never, a, there's not a fluff moment in any of these movies. Like, I I really wish more had been written about him because I would have really loved to learn more about his process because it feels like there's nothing wasted in any of these. Right. You can't point to a scene like the dog and you. I mean, like there's so much insanity going on that it's hard. It would be easy to say that some of that's not pointed, but it, all of it kind of moves to an end goal. 
Um, and I was always continuing to go back to the story. So like this. this yeah. Could you imagine cutting something out of that? <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, that's right, what I mean. No, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, and, and I'd be more confused. <laughs> <laughs> it's and, and to like the visuals of again, the visuals of all of these films are so wildly different, but also so wildly inventive. Like this felt like watching a live action papri uh, paprika to me. Mm -hmm. Like this felt mm -hmm. like I mean, cause especially because the you know the the um that one of the psychiatrists kind of feels like the the bald you know crazy guy in paprika, um, but it just like it I don't know it's it, like and now also watching this too it I wonder how many other filmmakers are inspired by Matsumoto. We just don't hear about it because this felt like inception. Like this felt like there was a lot of like, as he's running through the hall, through right, right. You're just going through layers and layers of, 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 of things. And he's when he's running through the hallway and all those on the papers are flying everywhere. It looks like explosions are happening. Like the, the sequence in the, and that, and that is such a kind of visual metaphor for what's happening in right. his head. And then, you know, the, the universe or the building that he's being kept in, right? We see it as like now it's decayed and disintegrated again, right? right? Another right. visual metaphor for like what's happening inside his mind. It's and like, another, yeah. one, another one of those ones where there's so much stuff going on in the background, right? That, that you couldn't like- And I have you... to read too? <laughs> well, and that's, no, but that makes, <laughs> no, a good, right. that makes a good point though, because I think all of these would have been better served seeing them on a big screen where you can kind of take in the entirety mm -hmm. of it all. Mm -hmm. Subtitles work better on a big screen where you're not trying to focus on a little, I mean, I know it's different, um, and it's it's difficult regardless, but but having it on a seventy five foot screen where the letters are much much bigger, you, it, it's easier to take in the entirety of of the picture. You read large print books too. I do. Time. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I have a, I have a fucking. I, I couldn't. I just. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. No, no, keep going. Keep going. And I read slow, so it's always, you know, a, always a fucking <laughs> joke with but, this but, guy. But there's there's so much going on in this, and again, you want to catch like this is like listening to it's like listening to Robin Williams. Yeah, like I mean, there's like when they're going off on the diatribes, there's it's so rapid fire that I was just I, I sat there and I watched this. And I'm like, okay, I'm there's no way I'm gonna catch everything in this. So mm -hmm. I'm just gonna I'm gonna watch as best I can. But you you cannot be distracted. This is one of the things why the theater would help because it helps just to not be distracted, to have darkness all around you to watch. I mean, like, because it's so beautiful what's going on and it's so intense that it, like, you just need to be able to yeah. be. Yeah, I mean, because I, I don't know about you, but I watched these as director Matsumoto would have wanted me to <laughs> on my laptop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like the director envisioned it. <clears throat> Yeah. <laughs> so, on a uh, on a fifteen inch widescreen. <laughs> oh wow! Well, Somehow heartbreak uh, feels good in a place like this. My couch <laughs> <laughs> on my lap. Yeah. This one is the hardest to describe. I, I and it's, it's I, I it's feel really like tough. we do it the least, and then when I, just the amount of uh, we do it this the disservice because it's again, I want people to watch all of these. Um, I don't want to discourage. I just, I feel like there's no way to like encourage anybody to watch. I don't know what you would do. This is like Brazil. Like, I mean, like if you were to do a, put together a trailer of this, this feels the most like a, a kind of yeah. Gilliam Brazil. That's a, yeah. I could, I, I mean, just, just how just much in, is happening the, within his head after the kind right. of like. And yeah. just the, just the, just the visualness of it all. This feels very Monty Python-esque. 
not it's not funny. I mean, there's funny parts of it. Actually, when he when the when they first see uh, I, I don't know the the bald psychiatrist and the picture starts talking, I was just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is this is this is a very kind of surreal humor, right? Right, and right. I think again, this goes back to Matsumoto's you know um, involvement and engagement with with experimental avant-garde you know video art and work like that where mm-hmm. he's carrying that kind of surreal humor over i mean you you look at surrealists like like duchamp like um dolly and even guys who were more involved with dada and it was never a sort of winking humor it was the humor presented straight lace right and just as a matter of fact which is what's going on here right I, you know i don't i don't i never felt like anything again was like played for laughs or like uh well, three stooges it, kind of you know elbow nudge like wink wink or if you even like put it to like the first 30 minutes of boa's afraid right where that's hilarious um and it's again, similar it's all right um, psychological, but, but even then, that still is played for laughs. I feel like mm-hmm. I could have watched an entire movie that was just in Looney Lad's head. Like, I mean, I oh, could have yeah. felt like that. I could have watched that play out the entirety of the film. Maybe Ari Aster has seen this film. It's I don't know. I'd have to ask. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have his number. I, I think I. I think I got a new phone, and you know, it's it's. Yeah, didn't he, he didn't make the cut. <laughs> yeah. He didn't Jason got a new flip phone. He went back. He went old school. And uh, that's how we're doing. It only has so much storage. We're going retro, baby. I got my my top five. I got five friends. Basically, that's it. <laughs> I didn't make it either, Ari. It's okay. <laughs> um, I don't know what else to say about this. Again, like this talks. So I, I I would say that for '88 again is one of these things. Like I don't see anybody talking about these themes really. Um, and if you do. They're in such pointed terms. Like, he That's never true. directs you to think one way or the other, yeah. right? I mean, like, he just asks the question, what do we do with this generational trauma? How are we handling mental illness? Yeah. Not, you know, really, what is mental illness? Like, because, I mean, he asks that question really is, too. Like, it doesn't matter, like, um, you know, are, are the, you know, basically. Ba- basically, that, like, right? Looney Lad is giving a speech to right. a room full of mentally ill, like, in his head. And he asks the question, like, what do we do with these people? How do we treat these people? Look at how we're treating them. I mean, he is asking those questions right. that, again, we're asking still today. What, 25, how many years later? 30. 30. Fuck. I can't do math either. <laughs> like 35 <laughs> years later. Right? And we're still sort of saying, well, how do we treat people with mental illness? How do we sort of talk about this? Right. Oh, wait. Mental illness might be like genetic in some way. Yeah, I mean he's he's putting these things out there in this film, and I don't I haven't read the novel, so I don't know how right. much he did that. But but this stuff is coming out in, in popular culture and films. And it's but still not today. Well, and we're also denying generational trauma today. Right. So I mean, like it's not it's just we're discounting it as we speak, essentially. So I mean not you and I are not discounting it, but I mean <laughs> No, we're calling attention to it. <laughs> right. I hope people find this podcast, specifically this episode, and I hope people go out and watch these films, and I hope they come and tell us about it. Because I do think, I, I, I know that, it, you know, you can kind of scoff at the pretentiousness of, like, film nerds and buffs and whatever you want to call it, this, this, this elitism that exists, mm-hmm. or that can exist. I think these films, if you find yourself thinking that you're a movie lover. These are films that are important to seek out. They're important to be part of your repertoire. And they're important to be able to talk about. I, 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 it, this, 
you don't see movies like this every single day. And I, I mean, and it's, it's I don't know. I, I, I don't know what else to say about that other than just say, go and watch these movies. Yeah. Make them known. Tell your friends about them. Put them in the conversation because that's how these become. That's how room gets made for them. Right, right. Because there is no room being made for them now. Like you said, there is no funeral parade of roses extended universe. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean. Matsumoto CU, right? Yeah, yeah, the that's MCU. what the MCU stands for. <laughs> the Matsumoto Cinematic Universe. And like, Let's and, make and, that happen. Yeah. Well, we that's should. A, that's a T-shirt oh that my, needs to happen. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Get to work can, on that. Can we just like put a picture of me with my eyes bleeding? Just like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but no, I, yeah. I mean, I, and then like I know that it's all about. It's all about money and stuff, but this is what we're this is what we're missing, right? We're missing opportunities to have to talk about films like these, to see films like these, to to sort of you know be blown away and 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 open up to different conversations with films like these. Yeah, in in a in a day and age where I think potent, well, I mean, like if you want to look at box office, I know everyone, not everyone, I know there's lamentations about box office poor performance of these $300 million. Why are we making $300 million films post, right. post pandemic? Right. Right. Like, why right. didn't we, like, why didn't we think through this and pare it down? <laughs> like what, what about the new Indiana Jones has to be 300 million. I mean, if you do the math on what the first Indiana Jones cost versus, I mean, like I understand inflated egos and doll and, and that type of thing. But outside of that really, is a, and I don't know if that's what Indiana, if people are screaming that I, I don't know what, what the new Indiana Jones costs. I don't. Um, but assuming Phoebe that. Waller Bridge is in it, so it can <laughs> right, cost whatever right. the fuck it needs to cost. Right. <laughs> but if we are lamenting the fact that these IP heavy, high budget films are underperforming, again, but, but and, on the, and again, the only reason that they're underperforming is because of what the theaters have lamented for the longest time. And I think we forget this argument because we want to wrap it up in some weird political horseshit these days of like woke, broke nonsense, which again is bullshit. <laughs> yes. It's it's, just, yes. it's bullshit. It's because no one gives a fuck and no one can even really define what that is. Like, anyway, and, and so <laughs> the, 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 the real reason that box office and I'm going to tell you definitively why it's, you know, yeah, this, is, this is why people tune in. <laughs> right. Why it's waning is because they've reduced the fucking window. Yeah. And, and, and it's what theaters have been decrying forever. And they were always adamant about, well, now, you know, we, it's got to be three months. It's got to be at least this amount of time, because if we don't, then people will fucking wait. And that's mm -hmm. exactly that's what's, what's happening. happening. People are going to wait. Four to six weeks, they won't give a shit because it costs a family four a hundred fucking dollars to go to the movies, right? It's fifteen dollars a pop, plus your popcorn and everything else. It's gonna fucking cost you that amount of money, and so people will most likely wait. And so that's the only reason that it's and 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 theaters and the, the studios got over on weirdly got over, but they're losing money. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how the dollars work once it gets to streaming. I don't. So I'm not gonna sit there. And I don't think anybody that. does though. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, seriously, Truly, right? Yeah. But I'm not, so I'm not going to make the argument of like who's really suffering from, from a box office perspective. Well, and who's, I mean, viewers are. Sure. Right. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Um, but like the theaters lost their leverage once COVID hit mm -hmm. and they had nothing mm -hmm. and they were about to go under and now there's less screens. 
So, yeah, I mean, there's there's no going back unless theaters can put their foot down and say, look, you're not going to release these movies. But video and demand dollars go directly into studio pockets. But also, I mean, go back to this idea of how much it costs to go to the theaters now. I mean, look, there are no good guys in this on in, in, in this argument. I mean, so on one hand, like, yeah, I would much rather go watch a film in the theater. But at the same time, can you blame? It's like going to a baseball game, right? right. One reason people don't go to baseball games anymore isn't because of the length of time, because it costs you $200 to go watch a fucking game. Right. right? And when, so like, when owners are charging you 50 bucks to park. Right. We went, we went to the, we went to the, to the movies just yesterday and I was watching a family of four by everyone got a slushy right. and there were multiple bags of popcorn and other treats. And I'm like, they just spent probably close to 200 bucks with tickets for everybody and all that. I'm like that. So who can afford that? It should not cost that much, right? I mean, it should not cost us that much to engage in leisure time, (laughs) right? It should not cost us that much to engage in any kind of artistic you know, um, um, it, it shouldn't cost us that much to, to engage with art. Right. And, and so to that end of these, all right, so if we can scale back the, the grandiosity of, of these budgets and these, um, and, and again, I'm not ever saying that people who work on these films shouldn't get paid, I, I get paid what they're worth. That's not what I'm saying. But I mean, there's, there's obviously room for, a $5 million, a $1 million film versus $300 million films that are clearly going to underperform. Because again, we have seemingly hit an IP, maybe, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it, I mean, we've always had IP, right? We've always had sure, um, sure. these types of properties, right? But I mean, again, but a you, saturation but, but you're going back to the, like, if you, if you look at Marvel, if you look at D, because Marvel and DC, we can always you can always make an argument, but they're the same movies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, regardless of, of and you've oversaturated it to the mm-hmm. point. Now you've got Star Wars. Now you've oversaturated it to the point because you've got streaming services that are also now putting out content. And you've got to do TV shows right. on top of. And so is it surprising that that people aren't? I mean, and I know that indie did fine, but it's just, is it surprising that someone is not, you know, people aren't going to a a movie that hasn't had a release in over 16 years. Yeah. And that is, is, I mean, like you already have three good movies and one that, so if it gets like, there's not, is there that much excitement over another Indiana Jones film? Whereas you look at something like Spider-Man across the universe, which is at least interesting to, visually to watch. It's innovative. A, and, right. And it's, so it's bringing something different to the table. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, that I get my, my point being is that there's, I think there's room because you see these non IP movies, uh, start to perform better than, than expected things like asteroid city. And, and I, there's one other one that's, I guess, I don't know if past lives is or not, but there was another one that came out in the same, um, that, that was overperforming of what its expectations were. There's these, there's, there's an audience Sanctuary, that exists. S&M cells. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, it was the re-release of Innis Men that was really That's the, what it was. our, our yeah, podcast yeah, yeah. kicked it over the next. Oh yeah, <laughs> six hundred theaters. Let's put it. We in. We got it into one half of a screen. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the. I, I don't. I mean, I, I think that this. I, what's going to be interesting? Because what's going to happen soon is that we're going to start running up against again, like we did with COVID. You're going to start running out of material because you're going to have writers and actors strike. I and mean, the writer strike's going on for what three months now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The actor strike is just about to kick off. 
mm-hmm. um, July 12th. So all that's going to happen. You're going to start running out of material. Really, what then? What what happens then? I I don't know. I, yeah. I think that there's a there's an appetite for some of this, like some of these these repertory films. And honestly, I don't necessarily, um, I, you know, were we not to get any more <laughs> big budget, big ticket films, like I the the expect if the expectation went back down to, and I know that this is not how capitalism works, yeah. But if the expectation went back down to where we were on 1980s levels, where the, the top grossing film, the, 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 you know, maybe there was two hundred million dollar grossing films, yeah. and the rest of them were. You know, if a film grossed twenty million dollars, or you know, that was considered a success if it only cost three or whatever. Right, you know, right. But that was back when films, like, yeah, we, right. We made films for that amount of money. Um, I don't know. It's I I find the whole. I we had this conversation um, off mic about how we're in this weird age of art disappearing almost immediately, and so the the story came out about Disney pulling off this movie that can that's a. Uh, McKenna Grace and Kid Cudi. It's called Crater. It's a sci-fi movie. It's got middling reviews on IMDb, so most likely it probably just sucks, right? It's just yeah. not. But I mean, like, and I say sucks. I don't, you know, whatever. I, I've never. I'm not going to watch it. I mean, it's just not for me. So it's fine. I'm not going to go. <laughs> um, but it's being pulled from Disney Plus after seven. So you figure that a sci-fi film probably costs twenty, thirty million dollars. If it if it doesn't exist on, um, it doesn't exist on streaming anymore. I know it'll still exist in piracy, and we can talk to that point in just a second, but it'll never exist on a physical media release. I mean, weirdly enough, Barbarian doesn't exist I know it doesn't on have a physical, physical media release. release. And so we are seeing the wane and, and basically the death of, of any sort of, uh, I think, true release that's not a big, huge blockbuster mm-hmm. or something that's mm-hmm. not picked up by a niche market like Criterion or Vinegar or Arrow or Synapse or whatever. I mean, like there's, there's obviously those are, there's are their boutiques, but those guys are not really focusing on first release. Criterion is sort of kicking back into like with quicker releases. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, and, and they, they'll pick up a, like they'll, you'll see Oscar winners from the previous year start right. getting really early Criterion releases. Um, but now they have that deal, uh, that deal with, it's Janice and who else? I can't remember the other distributor that they worked with um, that did EO and Godland. And, mm-hmm. and so those will get like an immediate release after, after no, theater runs. Right. Sense, so, yeah. but, it, but again, like those are, and I think in part, those are kind of some of the films we're talking about. A film like EO, a film like Godland, right. Getting an immediate, like, you know, physical media release through criterion, you know, after, the the theater run that they've agreed agreed on, and I don't so, know what Barbarian made, but I'm gonna, <clears throat> let's just say it's fifty million dollars, right? Let's just say it was a it was a decent horror release because it, it it surpassed what it was yeah what it cost to. right right. So I mean it got good reviews. I mean it was it had probably had decent legs. Um, the fact that it doesn't have a blue, I think it's very telling. I'm not saying necessarily that it's that it's, it's worrisome or I think it's telling that if these kind of mid level movies that we're talking about that should be back in the theaters are not even getting media releases. And I don't know where I'm assuming that you can rent it. Um, but for how long is the real question. And, and if it's on, and if it's on a streaming service, say if it's on a max or a peacock or whatever, how long does it stay there or does it get buried? And how does that, how do you account for revenue of that one film? 
right? I mean, again, like no one knows, and I, right, and I understand right. that. But but you would think that the studio would be like, people will buy Blu-rays of this, right? right. I mean, I mean, the, enough people will. People are still it, even if you did it as a as a Skinnerine got a steelbook, <laughs> right? Right. And I think maybe that was Shutter pushing it or something. I, I don't know, but I but, mean, but still, I mean, but still, your your point's made. I mean, yeah. like it, like even if it was a burn on demand service, and like, I, and again, maybe that maybe the the uh, the economics of that doesn't doesn't make sense. But like, it seems like you would sell some, right? So can I can I I want to ask you something? Yeah, and I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but, no, no. But I think this is what we do. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you. I think on one hand, you're making the case that the promise of streaming, the promise of sort of like storing things in the cloudish realm, right? Streaming music, streaming videos, that 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 promise is is a lie. And that it's not going to keep everything around forever, that it's that it's doing the exact opposite. It's making it easier for things to disappear or get lost. Right. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I'm not making any sort of like grand. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. But, about, but, but, but I mean, like from, and we're moving into this like historically anyway, right? Where we don't actually own anything anymore ever. Right. We're going to be able to rent the, the, the computer service that exists in our car and, and, and uh, essentially everything. Because that's the next step of capitalism, right? The only way that you can continually bring in money is to make sure that no one owns shit. Right. And we're right. always paying for the service. Right. I just, I, you know, but putting a pin in that and like, you know, saying we can't fight that doesn't really, I guess, what is our concern? I mean, like, I mean, because again, it doesn't like, I find it interesting that we're moving seemingly backwards um, from a stage where, you know, you used to have to hunt down certain pieces of media to be able to consume them, whether they be Japanese horror or whether they be foreign films or what, what have or you. Import or import records. Right. I mean, obscure things. Right. And then we hit a portion of where everyone had access to essentially everything, either if either if, even if it was through piracy, but it was also opening up to region free region free region free players. Um, you know, the ability to to buy globally on either on eBay mm -hmm, or marketplaces mm -hmm. that you could that you could have shipped globally. Um, it just seems interesting that that we're not only not able to do that anymore, but that we're almost inviting a another a new era of lost media that's going to exist and that we already have so much of it that doesn't that doesn't exist anymore and what does that say or what do we what does it say that we're that we're losing things that are almost immediately released and we're losing them and so and what's the value on things that were released a year ago or two i mean or 20 years ago or 30 years ago where do I mean I don't know I don't I, I guess it's just more of a conversation started than more than anything else is like we're just we're weirdly regressing whereas for the past thirty years not thirty years but the past you know probably fifteen to twenty we've been able to access really anything and now not that anybody's lamenting crater on Disney Plus but I mean but also we've seen movies that were finished that will never get released and I mean that you know that's happened in the past but I mean it's it's weird that. But I think the decisions are being made for different reasons now. Sure. Right? Where it, it is so much about bottom line, but only bottom line for kind of like the upper echelon. It's not even about... Because, I mean, like, the reason that Indiana Jones cost $300 million is because all of these, like, producers that want to get involved and sort of make money off of it, mm -hmm. right? And if we make it bigger, whatever. But that same idea of, okay, 
now we're going to just like cut back and we're not going to do this because I need to still keep my bonus. And I, and again, I know I'm kind of going back into this capitalism sucks thing, right? But but this is part of it. And I think people do lament the loss of like a crater because now we're sort of just taking, whether it's good or bad art, it's still art, right? Now we're just taking this away from potential eyes, from potential potential engagements, from, I mean, I don't know, can you learn something from Crater? Maybe. Right. Probably not. I'm probably just being sentimental at the, <laughs> at the loss of anything. But this comes down to, to like attention span, where we're all just like, okay, that was yesterday, right? That was last week's new release. I don't care well, anymore. And there is a glut of, I mean, a seeming glut of, of yeah. content, right? I mean, the, the, yes, more, than we, yes. more than we can take in. Yeah. Um, but that being said, as we get to a point of, I don't know, homeostasis of like just suck that exists right. with, with the with right. the output that I mean again, I, I hate I don't want to be of course I don't want to get into the conversation about I, I'm not I, I'm not the guy who says every major release is shit. That's, that's right. not that might's not my point. But this idea that we can that we would rather we this used to happen a lot because we we would kill things because a new version of that thing was coming mm-hmm. out, right? Mm-hmm. So you'd never be able to see than you know a 1930s version of a movie that's been that's being remade because we didn't want you to compare it and we didn't want you to to distract you from you know owning this thing um so i guess maybe the maybe the conversation is not really new it's just a matter of how to is is it compatible and i don't know the answer to that question no i well i don't think i don't think any of us do um yeah i don't i don't know i think i think the combat really is going to be pushing people back into piracy and and i don't necessarily know like the 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 piracy is not from a from a common user perspective i'm not sure if it's easy enough or um i mean i think it's easy enough i don't think people know how to do it do you want to tell people how to download torrent <laughs> downloaders <laughs> no no but i mean like you know i mean it, it was one thing when when napster was an, was a simple thing and it's and it's you didn't it didn't really seem like there's a mindy kaling bit on the comedy bang bang album and she's like you know they put out these warnings she's like you wouldn't steal a car would you and she's like, <laughs> she's like well, well if i if i could steal a car and my friend would still have that exact same car like yeah i might steal a car <laughs> like and she's like i'm and he goes if i didn't know anybody who'd ever bought a car before yeah i'd probably <laughs> steal probably. a car <laughs> It's a really funny big comedy bang bang go uh, go listen to the album um, <laughs> if you can find it I don't even know if you can anymore, right, but right. Uh, download it from Napster so I don't necessarily I don't necessarily know if the the barrier to entry is so high for because like for a while like this kind of comes in waves right for a while people were going to use groups after torrents got to mm-hmm. be and then, then then VPNs became pro, uh, prolific for a while people were just sideloading their um Apple TVs and Cody's and they could just uh with you know uh, you know whatever their streaming sticks with with Cody's and they could just search for things and it was just more of a streaming thing. So there's ways always ways around it. Um I don't think that'll ever go away. Um but that being said even then piracy is not necessarily the complete answer to any of this. No, you still no. have, to have people that, that host, right? right. I mean, so like not everything is available. Um so I don't know. I I I think it's a problem, and I don't know if if you don't have major studios putting out um, putting out these works. I don't. I think there's money to be made. I think there's clearly money to be made. There's enough millennials and boomers that are reinvesting in 
physical media. Because Gen X has always been here. Right, <laughs> right, right. Um, so, and, and like, so there's, not a, our there's, fault. there's a nostalgia um, portion of it. And because people, you know, when Snowmageddon comes and thing, you know, yeah. there's, 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 or when streaming services go off, you know, whatever. It, there's always physical media. When the internet there. crashes. Right. And- but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I find it, I, I find it kind of disturbing and saddening. Um, and I do think that it's short-sighted. I do think that um, the, it, it's just, to me, it's just like the Napster situation where you sat, you know, Blockbuster sat up and ran up against not doing online uh, rentals and screwing their customers over for so long. The, the, the music studios were trying to force you into buying songs for a dollar rather than giving you everything like they have. I mean, like, and again, there was a, there was a happy medium. People wanted to pay. Mm-hmm. People wanted to, but they didn't. And, and again, it's more, you know, it's it, they, but you can't make people pay $20 for non-physical media. And, right. and so, so there was a happy medium to be had. So things like if, if, if Spotify had a jumped off right after if they had a, gone in and rushed Spotify as soon as, or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. um, as soon as Napster kicked off, rather than, rather than lamenting what Napster was doing to them and trying to fight it, which you never were going to actually do, you could have made billions. I don't yeah. know if that is an exaggeration, but <laughs> you could have made money. You could have made money. And, and so th- there's, there's a, there's a service out there that exists. And maybe because people just don't give a shit because you just, but you, you flood them with crap and as long as new crap comes along i can continue to watch that crap but you hear all the time people lamenting about like if you were to have and, and this is happening with uh you know with turner classic movies as well you know you get you know where where, where everything and i know again everything is the bottom line everything is the dollar and everything is about maximizing profits um but to a certain extent you know you didn't but you also if you <laughs> devalue the product that you're putting out there there there's an audience for turner classic movies mm-hmm. there's a, there's a huge audience for turner classic movies um it, you know it's it's crazy to me that you seemingly cut off your nose to spite your face just because you're trying to make sure that your mac your, your profits are maximized for that's how economics work no it's not true <laughs> i mean it's how it's how bullshit capitalism works i'm kidding but but again like you i mean you, you i don't know why I don't, it, it's this constant chase of profits. The profits can never be high enough. And look, I have no sympathy for these people because you, you. <laughs> what? And that's the thing. I have no sympathy for the pirates. I mean, I have no sympathy when you get pirated. I really don't. No, I, not at all. If you gatekeep all of this to the extent, what, what you make it what, again, what like make it affordable, right? Make it affordable, right? Make it affordable. I mean, there's a reason people go crate digging for records, mm-hmm. right? And not, and not buy new stuff because, because all of a sudden, right, when people are like, oh, wait, vinyl records are cool again. All of these, like, major labels, now they're like $35 for a fucking record. Well, fuck you. I'm not going to pay that, right? <laughs> right. I mean, so, but it's that idea. Why Why do you have to charge so much? And again, I know it's profits. I know that's how capitalism works. But this is why these other things exist, right? This is why piracy exists. This is why people aren't going to the fucking theater. Right. Right. It's why they're waiting to watch something at home and why they're waiting to then rent or stream for free. Well, and it's like they don't. I mean, I get that that the studios don't own the theaters anymore, but it's just it's like. Right. But again, it's a fuck you. I'm going to take my ball and go home. Yeah. And and, and we'll all fail. 
rather than you know, rather than actually let's meet somewhere in the middle and make this palatable for everyone. Right, because like you said, we will pay, right? I, I'm more than happy to to pay for things. I mean, it, it, it's fine. I don't believe money is a real thing anyway. And, <laughs> and look, I'm never going to be able to stop working. So it doesn't really matter, right? Right, right? right. I will pay for things. That's not what I'm saying. But when you try to gouge me for everything, right, when you're going to charge me $9 for a medium bag of popcorn on top of the $15 for a ticket. Well, and, and if you start to devalue your own product, like, like, like yeah. you said, if you start to pull things, if I, if I have to watch them in a certain window, this is not, you know, them putting, this is not Disney putting shit back, back in the, the vault, vault right? <laughs> this is not that. Right. This is a, oh, I put out, oh, yeah, I put out subpar product for, and for whatever reason I'm pulling it off at seven. Why, why the fuck would I ever, why would I keep your service? Right. If you're going to cut shit off at, uh, what I'll do is I'll download the shit that I want to see and I just won't pay you. Right. Because right. you don't give a shit about me giving me access to what I want to get access to. Well, they don't give a shit about you, period. Right. I mean, they they don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's the bottom line. <laughs> Look, corporations are not people. And they don't care about people. They do not. Anyway, hey. Jason... Next time on Why Does the Wilhelm Scream, what are we going to be doing? <laughs> We're going to dig into the first, to say, two films of uh, John Cassavetes. All right, let's do it. We're going to dig into Cassavetes as I'm excited about the process, and I'm, I'm excited about watching all these movies over again. But yeah, so um, if you want to watch along with us, uh, the next time we watch, we'll watch uh, those two first films. Perfect. Um, we going to talk about anything else? We're going to talk about um, something new? It'll be a minute before we record again, so I'm sure we'll, throw, will. Something, we'll, we'll throw something in new between now and then. Yeah. Um, you, you, you know us. We always, <laughs> we don't have a plan here. We're just making it up as we go along. That's very is, true. Which is the only way to do it. <laughs> All right, next time we will dig into Cassavetes and we will do something else as well. Um, until then, thanks for listening, everyone. And Sakabi Suzukare. You have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you like today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscreen.com. If you are in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time, 